this is extremely shady. Why should we accept being less fertile and biologically masculine than our forefathers? We shouldn't. Aim for free testosterone that is at least 1.8% plus of your total testosterone. Anecdotally, this is as low as my free T has been where I haven't been fatigued. But as we're all physiologically distinct, you may require more or less than I do. Once you have your blood test results back, you can use a free online testosterone calculator to deduce your free testosterone percentage if the lab you used didn't calculate it for you. Need testosterone replacement therapy? You can find a provider online if you're in the U.S. In Europe? Then you're shit out of luck for an internet-based service. Western and Northern Europe are really crappy places to live if you want to get your hands on pharma-grade testosterone. Try Googling your area name followed by testosterone replacement or men's health clinic. They're expensive as hell. Alternatively, take a trip to Eastern Europe, buy a ton of testosterone over the counter, and bring it back. This is legal to do in the UK, but you should check the laws where you live. Live in a poor country? Poor countries don't baby you. You can probably walk straight into your nearest pharmacy and buy pharma-grade testosterone right over the counter, hassle-free and without a prescription. This is what a reader of mine from Pakistan did, going from 200 nanograms per deciliter to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter in no time. Okay, I am. What blood test should I order if I suspect hypothyroidism or diabetes? For the assessment of potential thyroid issues, you want the following checked. TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. A range of 1 to 2 milliunits per liter is best. Higher is worse. Too low is bad. FT4, free T4. FT3, free T3. RT3, reverse T3. TPOAB, thyroid peroxidase antibodies. Lower is better. TGAB. Thyroglobulin antibodies. The higher your TSH, the harder you will find it to cut body fat because your thyroid's working slower. Some people supplement with thyroid hormone for this reason. I haven't done it, so I can't comment on it as much as I just did testosterone, but it's worth mentioning. For the assessment of diabetes, you want the following checklist. HbA1c. It should be beneath 42 millimoles per mole. Lower is better. 42 to 47 is pre-diabetes, and 48 plus means you're diabetic. If you want something good to compare it to, mine was sitting at 32 the last time it was checked. If I've used measurements your country doesn't use, you'll have to find a converter online somewhere. The internet may be global, but the metrics used to measure things have not been globally standardized. Vitamin D3 and the B vitamins don't really require a blood test because you can just buy some cheap supplements from Amazon and take them for two weeks. If you don't start feeling more energetic, you know those weren't the source of your tiredness. If you want to be rigorous and have the cash, you can get these things checked as well, but they're not as high priority as having your hormones checked. If you get blood tests done by a doctor rather than getting them done independently, ask for a copy of your blood work so you can see the numbers and interpret the results yourself. Many doctors will interpret the results on your behalf and then say they're fine without even letting you see the numbers. You don't want this, because this puts you at the mercy of their judgment, level of ignorance on the current literature, and whatever clinical vested interests they may have. You use unspecialized doctors mainly for their ability to prescribe, not their opinion, as most have no clue about effective testosterone therapy. You have to be your own doctor. You can't trust them to get everything right, or even have your best interest at heart. 
any doctor reading this will hate me for saying it, but it's true. There are far too many crappy doctors out there to be taking chances on your health. It's your health, and you're a man, so you have to take control. Personally, I would recommend getting your tests done by an independent lab, as then you get to see all the numbers and don't need to argue with your doctor to see your own blood work. Many don't like the idea you don't just blindly trust them to interpret the results for you. Number four, methods for improving your energy levels. I will start with the most conventional things you're most likely to know and get less and less conventional as I go down the list. Food. Some people have far more energy on a low-carb, high-fat, and high-protein diet, whereas others feel terrible on a low-carb diet. If you've been on low-carb for a while and never feel like you have any energy, your body is screaming out for carbs. We do not all respond with equal success to the same macronutrient distributions. Thus, experimenting with your body and learning what does and doesn't agree with you is essential. There is no generalized one-size-fits-all diet. Experiment with yourself. Sleep. Ideally, you never wake up to an alarm clock and simply wake whenever your body decides it's time to get up. Most people don't have the freedom nor luxury to do this and have to be up at a set time every day because they're trapped in the rat race. The average REM cycle lasts about 1.5 hours. So if you have to be up at 7 a.m., go to bed at 11.30 p.m., 1 a.m., 2.30 a.m., or 4 a.m. Obviously, going to bed at 4 a.m. and waking up at 7 a.m. is not a sustainable sleep habit, but by timing your sleep like this, you will find it easy to get out of bed, as opposed to clambering out of bed full of grogginess. Fasting. I really actually can't recommend this enough. I'll probably have to write an article on it at some point, as whenever I mention it on Twitter, I get about a million questions, but I will address it here. Fasting is great for getting rid of fatigue and boosting productivity. If you are a typically low-energy person, it's possible you have poor digestion stemming from a gut condition, or just have generally poor gut flora, which you fix by eating fermented foods like unpasteurized sauerkraut. When fasted, your body is not digesting anything, and thus you get more blood flow to your brain. Not only that, but physiologically your body starts burning ketones for fuel, starts healing your body via autophagy and jacks up cortisol, adrenaline, and growth hormone secretion to give you energy in the absence of caloric consumption. If you want to learn more about the biological processes behind fasting, I highly recommend reading The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. When fasted, I sleep less. On a training day, I will sleep for around 7 to 9 hours. On a non-training day, I'll sleep for 6 to 8 hours. On a fasted day, I'll sleep for 4 to 6 hours fasting dramatically reduces sleep requirements. And yes, you wake up feeling completely refreshed and won't feel the need to go to bed early during the day because you slept less. How do I fast? I drink black coffee, green tea, and water. I eat no food. I can regularly go for 22-hour periods without eating anything like this and be incredibly focused and energetic the entire time. Now we're going to move out of the realm of lifestyle change and more into the realm of substance consumption to give yourself a quick boost. Stimulants, nootropics. None of these things will fix the underlying cause of your fatigue, but they can act as short-term fixes until you get to the bottom of the cause. Modafinil. This is a wakefulness drug developed to treat narcolepsy and sleep apnea, but is used off-label as a study drug. Its main mechanism is unknown, but... It's a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, 
which means it can make you motivated and energetic by keeping your dopamine high. Whiskey. I bet you're surprised to see this here. Your mileage may vary depending on your physiology. I wrote whiskey and not alcohol because not all alcohol has the same effect. Wine and beer tend to send you to sleep, whereas whiskey acts as a stimulant. Now, it's not my wish to encourage alcoholism. However, what works, works. If you feel lifeless, a glass of whiskey or two could turn your day around and have you kicking. If you drink alcohol with any degree of regularity, be smart and take a liver protector with it. You can take NAC or the far more powerful but more expensive TUDCA. Black coffee with grass-fed butter and MCT oil in it. Grass-fed butter is recommended for the omega-3. Most people don't get enough. This concoction gives a massive energy boost and is known informally as bulletproof coffee. Get the darkest coffee you can get your hands on for extra strength. Number five, in closing. I am not a doctor or nutritionist and do not claim to be. Thus, none of this constitutes medical advice and you should take everything I've said with a pinch of salt. I have not identified absolutely everything that could cause fatigue, merely a handful of things. The information here is comprehensive, but not exhaustive. If anyone has additional suggestions, I'd be more than happy to hear them in the comments. I hope the advice given proves itself useful. Until next time, yours, I am. How to use your ego. Stupidity combined with arrogance and a huge ego will get you a long way. Chris Lowe. Number one. The building blocks of reinvention. Whether they're aware of it or not, everyone has an opinion on narcissism and a value system based on a preference for its presence or absence. Some respect only the boldness of grandiosity, whereas others are repelled by the lack of grace exhibited by unadulterated id. As such, those looking to reinvent themselves are typically confused about the degree of ego they should aspire toward in the pursuit of their idealized self. Is ego good, or is it bad? This is a context-dependent question, but in the grand scheme of things, it is neither. Rather, it is a tool. One's mental visualization of their ideal persona changes in accordance with their life experience. The arrogant, self-aware intellectual can see where arrogance has cost him, and may as such aspire to a more stoic life. Should a man's failure be associated with passivity, on the other hand, he will view egotism as the answer. It is a fallacy of instinct to believe embodiment of the egotistical opposite is a solution to the floundering personality of current. Balance is necessary in all things, and ego is no exception. To maximize one's success, you must be plural rather than singular. Not the stoic or the narcissist, but rather the stoic and the narcissist. Many, many people disagree with this premise out of distaste, but nonetheless its utility is incontestable. The egotistical should practice humility, as the humble should egotism. Each is necessary, and neither is sufficient, for finesse requires the ability to wield both. The ability to exercise finesse is more of a product of trial and error than it is an innate competency. And so the area you're weak in is the one that requires the most focus. In short, do not pick a side. Develop your weaker one. Number two of ego and humility. Some scenarios require ego, where others necessitate humility. 
Finesse is an awareness of the ego-humility spectrum and the ability to be as humble or egotistical as a given situation demands. Expressing anger or ingratitude when you win at something demonstrates hubris, which in turn detracts from the beauty of your accomplishment by infecting it with crudeness. Be humble in success and egotistical in struggle, for ego is attractive in struggle but redundant in achievement. Context is of course key to this maxim, and a man of the nuanced competency necessary to practice finesse understands this. In matters of women, ego always pays. Women admire dominance and thus reward ego, irrespective of their protestations. In sales, whether or not ego pays is contingent on who you're selling to. If you're targeting the lower end of the market, it pays well. If you're targeting the upper end, it will not. At the upper end, you need passion to avoid insolence and servility, a single-minded belief in the thing you're pitching rather than an overt desire to persuade. The exact gradient of finesse you're looking to embody here is one of passionate humility. The influential are viscerally repulsed by the forceful crudeness with which a less accomplished egotist proclaims and dismisses. They want to see vision shining through struggle. Enough ego to get the job done, but not so much you act like you're better than they are. To understand the level of ego necessary to get what you want from a person and adjust your behavior accordingly is ultimately to exercise finesse. Finesse is both diplomacy and narcissism. Sophistication when diplomacy pays, and arrogance when it doesn't. An effective strategist puts neither off the table. A man adept at wielding power is a man of finesse. He is neither stoic nor egotistical, but a compartmentalization of each. A dual personality proficient in recognizing the needs of a situation and unleashing or restraining his ego as necessary. To be able to summon egotism or humility at will, rather than embody one or the other, is an abnormal state. Most are confined to an identity rooted in one or the other, unable to adapt as required, and thusly suffering because of it. As such, like most things the average person cannot do, learn this and you gain a distinct edge. The contrast of ego and humility is incredibly attractive, and together blurs into a kind of humble confidence that makes you difficult to read. The difference between the confident man and the arrogant one is the arrogant lacks the civility to express humility. Confident people can make very narcissistic remarks, but their sporadic demonstrations of humility dissuade people from shunning them as egotists. People make value judgments based on your level of overt egocentrism. And so by switching between overt narcissism and thoughtful humility, your inconsistent complexity fascinates them. Number three, of adaptability and authenticity. Learning people and adapting to them is fundamental to the practice of effective Machiavellianism. In the pursuit of finesse, almost everything you do will come down to getting better at understanding people from scarce information. As you learn more about them, you adapt to them, conducting yourself in a manner they'll appreciate. You do not talk to the egotistical in the way you do the reserved, nor the intelligent in the way you do the dim. By being able to correctly identify personalities and their attendant traits, e.g. egocentrism for narcissists, skepticism for rationals, and simplicity for dumb people, you learn to talk to people in the way that makes them most receptive. The foolish and uncontrollably vainglorious are big on the idea of authenticity, 
that a person should always behave in a way most natural to them, irrespective of all else. Strategically speaking, this advice is complete hogwash. It implies artifice is quintessentially negative, unnecessary, and that simply being yourself is enough to succeed. This is a lie that everybody wants to believe, that they are innately enough, and that they don't need to behave in ways that don't suit them in order to succeed. Be yourself only if you've given up on life, or are already a highly developed person, and thus being you entails a capacity for finesse. Otherwise, whatever you do, do not be yourself. This is the worst advice anyone could give you. For those of you interested in logic, be yourself is a social personification of the naturalistic fallacy, the assumption that the artificial is bad and the natural is good. This assumption is amusing, considering we spent thousands of years developing the unnatural indoors in order to escape the perfectly natural outdoors. However, I digress. If being yourself means the self can adapt to a multitude of various personalities, I'm all for it. But if it means behave in the way that comes easiest rather than the way that'll improve your chances of winning, then I am not. Mark my words. Authenticity is an indulgence of the accomplished narcissist trying to build rapport by sharing his struggles. This inspires people, quells jealousy, and ultimately makes money. It's a good strategy for him. But for you, it's misinformation. There is authenticity and dedication, but beyond that, everything is political. Those who tout the horn of authenticity are some of the smoothest social chameleons you'll ever meet. They had to be to get where they are. They are playing the game. They are exercising finesse. And in buying into the romance of their struggle and taking their advice on authenticity to heart, you severely cripple yourself. One does not grow and build relationships with diverse people without trying on styles unnatural to them. People are told to be themselves even when their selves are insufficient, because supposedly artifice is so undesirable it's better to be a natural loser than an artificial winner. Yes, you should accept yourself, but no, this doesn't mean you shouldn't use social finesse. Most who convincingly endorse authenticity do so from a position of power. Power is rarely obtained and is never sustained in the absence of finesse. If you talk to everybody in the same way, your inability to tailor your attitude and speech stylistic will leave many doors closed. This is not so much being fake as it is being dynamic. A person able to converse with a multitude of people rather than a mere subset is vastly more effective than one who cannot. Caveat. If you cannot convincingly tailor your demeanor to a person and the stakes are high, do not emulate them at all. Your inability to convincingly compliment them will be seen as an affront, and rather than be respected for being alike, you will be disrespected for appearing false. In this instance, your go-to strategy should be to employ passionate humility. Flexibility is only falsity when it's unsuccessful. Falsity is no more than a failure of finesse an inadequate attempt at mimicry that results in ostracization. Number four, of learning. If you're not very good at something and want to get better at it, ego is your worst enemy. It will render you impervious to constructive criticism, robbing you of the introspection necessary to fix your flaws. If you want to develop your knowledge or refine a methodology, take the position you are clueless and seek feedback from observers to discover what you did wrong. The key reason people don't alter failing strategies is because they're prone to personifying them. 
If you become too ego invested in how you do something rather than see your actions as tools, you won't want to change method as it'll hurt too much to acknowledge your failure. When you see your actions as a means to an end rather than as a value judgment against yourself, you're able to do what must be done. By being humble in learning, you not only become adaptive, but you escape your worst critic, yourself. In short, when you're trying to improve, humility is the path to competence, and ego will cause you to suffer. Do not trust your ego when you're struggling to get something right. It'll deceive you. Be rigorous and ask yourself, is this logical? Followed by, is it true? Number five, in closing. Always use the least amount of power necessary to convince or destroy, never excess. Excessive use of power is sloppy, indicative of one who knows not how to wield it. An overuse of power can result in unforeseen consequences detrimental to the wielder, hence Law 47's In Victory Know When to Stop. As a final note, heed this. The Stoic is a bore, and the narcissist but a fool. The wise man knows what he must be and is what he must be when he must be it. Summary Notes Fine-tune your ego to complement the person you're dealing with. Use stereotypes to form a baseline assumption of a person's expectations, and if they disprove the assumption, e.g. you thought they'd respect a humble person, but they only respect the egotistical, then switch. Passionate humility is more effective than supplication, or arrogance when they have the upper hand. Supplication is transparently manipulative. Arrogance is grating and insolent. You can go all in with ego, bluff, and try to reverse value perceptions in negotiation, but ultimately if they're the one taking on the risk, you need them more than they need you. Authenticity is how the accomplished build rapport with the unaccomplished. It does not mean they don't play the game. All successful people are playing the game. Humility and ego are not binary. Passionate humility, aka nice narcissism, is the midpoint. Passionate humility defined. You're obsessed with what you do and you talk it up, but you credit others and defend with passion rather than attack with vitriol. Ego is a tool to be used when beneficial and put away when it is not. If you want to attract a woman, be egotistical. If you wish to learn a thing, be humble. Be yourself is an empty, nonsensical platitude. Be what you must be to maximize your chances of success. Sporadic demonstrations of humility and grandiosity make you appealing and difficult to morally judge. And ultimately, don't identify with either ego or humility. Both are tools. Use them. How to be happy. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Mahatma Gandhi If somebody had told me what I'm about to tell you when I was a teenager, my life could have gone down a completely different path. Recently I received a message where I felt it necessary to reveal some of my life's struggles in order to help nail home some serious points. My response became lengthy in an effort to address the question, and resultantly, this article was born. Question. How do I become happy? Happiness comes from earning, and it must be earned, the privilege of thinking positively about yourself. People are oft unhappy because they're mad at themselves for being undisciplined, 
or because they aren't succeeding as much or as quickly as they believe they should. An ambition-success mismatch. I've been depressed on and off numerous times in my life, and the root of said misery derived from two core character flaws. A lack of self-discipline. Self-discipline never came easily to me because my attention span sucked and I didn't have a strict upbringing. By being allowed to do what the hell I wanted as a kid, I formed into an adult with an ingrained lack of self-discipline. My training, or lack of it, meant I'd almost always default to the path of least resistance. Of course, parents who don't provide an orderly upbringing suck, but blaming their inadequate parenting for your faults doesn't achieve anything actionable. As an adult, you have to take responsibility for disciplining yourself. Why is discipline so important? Self-discipline is essential if you want to be somebody worth a fuck. If you lack it, this should be the very first thing you work on. Nothing else can fall into place without it. There are a million and one bullshit seminars and books out there looking to make money out of your insecurities by promising to make you confident. 99.9% are nonsense. As P.T. Barnum said, there's a sucker born every minute. The truth? Only you can make you confident. Disciplined people are confident people, not necessarily egotistical, because they're proud of what they do. When you know you're putting the work in, a byproduct of your efforts will be pride. Pride translates into self-confidence. Confidence translates into charm, and it's an upward spiral from there on. But everything starts with discipline. Everything. Discipline is the root of success, as much as three is the root of nine. If you are not someone blessed with a natural, irrational confidence, this is how you get confident. Being overly analytical. I'm naturally prone to analysis paralysis because I have an analytical nature. Once you achieve a reasonable amount of self-discipline, you can catch yourself in the act of procrastination and force yourself to act. Other than procrastinating, the other problem with being overly analytical is it allows you to see all the negatives in the world. And there are many. Everywhere. Daily. And the sheer volume will bog you down if you're not careful. If you are intellectual, your analytical faculty will apply a negative filter to life because you're prone to cynicism, overthinking, and in turn, inaction. These traits are a hotbed for depression. And depression destroys productivity. I think I just described every intelligent underachiever that ever lived, knowing so much, yet doing so little. I had to find my own way in life, like most dudes who didn't have a firm hand to guide them in their youth. I was devoid organization, impulsive. I'd cram my studies in near the deadline instead of starting three weeks in advance and going at a comfortable pace. I'd bum around with friends, meaning other directionless average people looking to fill their time, instead of taking up meaningful hobbies, a sport, instrument, foreign language, or martial art. This is a mistake I will never let my own kids make. I had to waste a lot of time to figure out it was precious, because when you're a directionless loser, you don't value yourself nor your time. You're always trying to find new ways to squander it on meaningless crap because you have no goals. And if you have goals, you lack the drive that comes from discipline to stick with the regime needed to make them reality. I was one of those guys who dreamt big but held myself back. And through repetitive complacency, a most irrational fear took root. Inaction would breed fear until I'd lost all momentum. 
and without momentum, you're at risk of depression. In the words of Einstein, life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. I've always known what I've had to do. Come to think of it, nobody's ever actually told me I'm stupid, but intelligence isn't enough. Intelligence doesn't make you immune to character flaws. It doesn't guarantee work ethic. Discipline does. And it threatens happiness. Stimulus overload. An idiot who attacks life reaps more of its rewards than an idle intellect spectating from the sidelines. My laziness made me unhappy. I had become my comfort zone's prisoner. Upon introspection, I eventually came to realize everything I've just said. The analytical ability came in use for something. It allowed me to psychoanalyze myself and determine cause and effect. My weakness became a strength. Alongside what I learned from the red pill, it allowed me to make the mindset shift necessary to reprogram myself. I was unhappy because I knew I wasn't living up to my potential. The source of my unhappiness stemmed from the anger and discontent I harbored for being less than my best. The chasm between who I was and who I thought I should be was vast. But for a long time, I wasn't cognizant enough to realize that this was the source of all my woes, including brief bouts of depression. It's great that you found the red pill, but if you're stuck in your head and you lack discipline, you'll never go beyond reading. And when your life doesn't improve, if you're not self-aware of why it hasn't, you'll blame the red pill for your lack of success rather than take responsibility for your own lack of success. The red pill will not fix your life. It is just a tool. How you use it will determine if you manage to refashion your life into something you can be proud of. How does the saying go? A good workman never blames his tools. The red pill is only a tool. Knowing isn't enough. You must do. And where you fail, you must take responsibility for your failures. If the red pill isn't working for you because you haven't changed your approach to life, that's your fault, nobody else's. To get ripped, you actually have to lift. To earn more money, you actually have to work your butt off. To get girls, you actually have to approach. Or put pictures of yourself ripped on Tinder. But you get my point. Knowledge is pointless without application. If you have to repeat one phrase from the entire article to yourself, it should be this. If you are too scared to do new things, you're a prisoner of your comfort zone, like I was. And if the timid body language I spot in my day-to-day is indicative of anything, I think a lot of you are in this situation. You're just silently ashamed of it. So how did I find happiness? I accepted myself in spite of myself. And this is how people who realize they fucked up find happiness. The problem with unhappiness is it destroys your productivity and sociability. Miserable people are nihilists that don't see a point in doing anything. They don't attract people who could improve their lives because their negative energy acts as a repellent. If you are depressed, you don't sleep well, and you don't have the energy to do anything. You don't want to socialize, and you bomb social interactions because your energy level is in the gutter. The whole world feels like a chore. And when the world feels like a chore, you can't build the life you want to have for yourself. I found this first step crucial to overcoming happiness. Let me say it again. I accepted myself in spite of myself. I stopped beating myself up for being a loser and started praising myself for doing what I could to build myself. Even if I don't have the level of success or stature, the ridiculous 
ridiculously high standards of my ambition demand of me, I accept what I have and who I am as long as I do my best. Because your best is all you've got. To demand more than that is to dangle yourself a carrot that is constantly snatched away. I enjoy the journey of becoming slightly less shit every day. I enjoy the grind, the struggle, the hustle. You have to in order to get anywhere. And if my best isn't enough, so be it. I'll try something else. I'm fine with being imperfect. I accept failure as an inevitable part of life. It's better to fail because you're not good enough than fail because you're scared you won't be good enough. Anything is better than giving up. To quote Winston Churchill, Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Ambition is useless if it serves to depress you for not achieving it. Ambition, goals, need incentive to avoid being a loser. Most people think that the goal will bring happiness, and it does when you first achieve it. But that doesn't last. Lasting happiness lies in self-acceptance. All other forms of happiness are fleeting. A clever thing I did was turn my fear against itself. The fear that used to imprison me is now the same thing that drives me. I never got rid of my fear, I just inverted it. Rather than let my fear of leaving my comfort zone destroy my potential, I used my fear of being a loser to motivate myself and start taking action where I was once avoidant. I'm far more scared to be a loser than enter conflict or experience an awkward social situation. Making fear work for me works for me. Most people are unhappy for one of two reasons, possibly both. They're slobs squandering their best resource, their time. If you slob it up for a month, you may be happy because you enjoy the moment's pleasures. But when a year passes, then two, and you catch even a moment to look back and compare yourself now with who you were then, and you're not better than that guy, you're the same guy, or worse yet, you're inferior to him, that shit is going to hit you like a ton of bricks. You are going to be miserable because you've let yourself down. Their ambitions far exceed their stature, and their lack of status causes them to put so much pressure on themselves that they can't even breathe and just enjoy the simple things. The sun on their face, the air on their nose, etc. I was afflicted by both. You may be afflicted by either. If you are affected by neither, yet you're still unhappy, you're either surrounded by toxic people or lonely. If you're unhappy, but you're not a loser. If you are successful, yet still unhappy, there's a good chance you're an overachiever who feels like nothing is ever enough. Your ambitions are undoing you. Your dissatisfaction means you're always in a hurry instead of enjoying the grind. The problem with that is once you get there, it won't be enough. Because you haven't learned to be happy, you've only learned to be successful. If you can have money, independence, a decent body, high IQ and skills, and a good job, yet still are miserable, it's because you haven't learned to accept yourself. Success isn't the problem. You have plenty of it. A lack of self-acceptance is at fault. One has to accept their efforts, that they're doing what they can. That doesn't mean get lazy. You're only human. Not every minute of every day is going to be 100% productive. You are not perfect. Just because you are successful, you're not perfect. 
If you hold yourself to impossible inhuman standards, you will always hate yourself, whether you realize that or not. And as such, you will be unhappy at your core. Forgive yourself for your weaknesses and work to overcome them rather than hating yourself for having them. If you're successful and comfortable with yourself, yet still unhappy, you're probably lonely or surrounded by terrible people. Look for good friends. They make life less shitty. Everything is better with good company. Loneliness can be just as debilitating as laziness. If you are prone to loneliness, I'd caution against going full monk mode. It will only make you worse. Take two days off a week to socialize and recharge. Many men waste their life looking for the right woman. But whilst good friends can last a lifetime, women rarely do. True friends look out for your interests. Women look out for their own. True friends are rare, as most are only interested in what they can get from you or use you for. A true friend is a family member who doesn't share your blood, is loyal, cares about your progress, and is there for you in tough times. Do they care about your problems? Do they make time for you in your time of need? No? Not a friend. Everybody else is an acquaintance, regardless of what they call themselves. Machiavellian thinking versus conventional logic. The tongue is the sword of a woman, and she never lets it become rusty. Chinese proverb. Number one. Justification is a Machiavellian fallacy. Justification is for the weak. In the game of power, nobody respects he who justifies himself. Within a social fabric where the lowest common denominator prevails, where feelings triumph over logic, and likewise grandiosity over humility, honesty is but a virtue bastardized. You see, it is the transparency of justification that makes it powerless. Regardless, many an intellectual man's instinctual adherence to logical authoritarianism renders him incapable of determining this. Therefore, when he is tested, questioned, scrutinized, and cross-examined, his most visceral instinct is to justify himself to his haranguing attacker. Woe befalls him. Little does he know his challenger's agenda is malicious and their inquiry insincere. Such a man haphazardly scrambles to explain himself by demonstrating his thought process. It is in this moment the Machiavellian knows they have won. With widening smile, such a rational yet foolish man can be gamed, intimidated, humiliated, and berated. He will be kept on the defense with his own words, for it is they which will be weaponized against him. The more he speaks, the deeper his grave. As Queen Gertrude said in Hamlet, The lady doth protest too much, methinks. Likewise, he who opts to prove, demonstrate, and qualify himself with merely and solely the spoken word is perceived to be dishonest, pathetic. The justification is not seen as transparent or helpful, but rather as persuasive, deceptive, false, even when it isn't. People have a propensity to distrust that which doesn't embody an element of effortlessness. With both the playful Machiavellian and the dimwit, a sentiment is shared. The more one protests, the more their guilt is assumed. It is thought if one were not guilty, they would feel no need to justify their position. Why? Well, because their position would be obvious, of course. Oh, the subjective horror. To the idiot and the Machiavellian alike, truth is self-evident. It is organic and therefore shows in one's actions. 
The need to have to say anything about an aspect of oneself robs it of its naturalness, and therefore, to the devout Machiavellian, its charismatic credibility. Honesty destroys mystery, and with it the attraction of curiosity. The Machiavellian hates the duplicitous more than most, and yet respectfully appreciates only the cunning. As such, Machiavellians tend to be in a constant flux of love-hate with their peers. When you are understood, you are unattractive. When you try to help people understand you, they lose respect for you. You're making it too easy. People only value what they work for, be it wages or relationships. Of course, the man of reason is oft deficient in the social realm, and therefore he does not fully comprehend the games that people play. Number two, Machiavellian gender differences. The minds of rational men are attuned toward deduction and debate, not toward subtextual nuance and psychological warfare. This is why so many men are undervalued, if not completely absent, in the social game. Superficial social popularity does not care how smart you are. Women know this innately, and are thus natural improvisers compelled to manage delicately how others perceive them. Women are sensitively attuned to their reputation in this way, uniquely so. Whilst men, on the other hand, are less innately capable of such facades, finding the effort involved cumbersome and alien. Rational but socially deficient men attempt foolishly to enhance their social standing with logic, knowledge, and shows of intelligence, dare one say intellectual narcissism. But this serves only to further repel the masses. In the social game, it is rhetoric, humorous wit, and good feeling that are valued above all. That, and of course, matters of the flesh, in which sex appeal is something women possess no short supply of. Naturally, idiots care little for reason, for they cannot grasp it. And as for Machiavellians, the transparency bores them. They despise it because it is boring, and it is boring because it is bereft cunning. There is neither fun nor challenge to be had in the absence of mystique, for the cunning possess a propensity to seek perpetual psychological challenge. Logic bores the playful Machiavellian, for it is too serious, too predictable, and too bland for their social palate. And that which is bland by dismerit of transparency is accordingly disrespected. There are those, such as myself, who can switch between a Machiavellian and logical mode of communication, but this is atypical. Most people are firmly cunning, indirect and subtle, or transparently direct in their dominant mode of communication. For man, Machiavellianism is predominantly a vocation learned. Few men are naturally equipped with Machiavellian tendency, let alone apt in employing its devices. Some are raised in challenging environments which imbue these traits from a young age, but rest assured, Machiavellian is a female instinct and a male art form. If man does not pursue Machiavellianism as an art form, a vocation to be learned and practiced, he can never hope to be half as cunning as the typical woman. Feminine cunning is a byproduct of female evolutionary development, and thus is oft subconscious rather than premeditated. Ergo, most women do not lack cunning. Most men do. A manipulative mentality is not a modus operandi for the average man like it is the average woman. Man was given biceps to impose his will. Women received the gift of cunning. If man wants to become cunning, he must thus go out of his way to become acquainted with the Machiavellian mode of thinking. In absence of such instinctual proclivity, man must learn to integrate Machiavellian ideas through reading and social practice. 
Throughout human existence, women have been the physically weaker sex. As such, they have needed to evolve subconscious strategies to covertly manipulate men in ways that benefit their soul needs. When you are physically weaker than most of your predators, and thus rely on man to protect and supply you, you have to get good at exploiting male strength and reason to ensure you are protected and provided for. Remember, female economic independence is a fairly recent trend. For almost all of human history, women have depended upon men for their resources. Naturally, manipulation with and without its sexual connotation is the predominant perfume of the feminine. Some men blindly dabble in Machiavellianism out of anger, frustration, or a lust for power. But fewer yet vocationally refine their Machiavellian capacity to a degree beyond woman's ability. Indeed, much the scope of illimitable men is aiding one in this endeavor. You see, the majority of men are effectively clueless in matters of Machiavellianism. Women, on the other hand, are Machiavellian as water is wet. You'd be hard-pressed to find a woman who isn't Machiavellian female oddists come to mind as a possible exception. The idiotic man is limited most by morality, the intelligent man by rationalism, and the woman, neither. For women, Machiavellianism is the de facto status quo, her natural way of both conscious and subconscious interaction with the world. Things don't have to be logically or morally right for women to believe in an idea or exhibit specific behavior. Women have been observed to make noble moral arguments, while surreptitiously behaving contrary to the repute of said opinion. It is all in the glory of disassociation that women can easily manipulate themselves into believing falsehoods via pseudo-rationalization. This makes them incredibly compelling, as it grants them the capacity to bare-faced lie with a seemingly pure conviction. This is something typical of the feminine, but deemed psychopathic in nature when depicted by the masculine. In the greater manosphere, we refer to this phenomenon as the rationalization hamster. The typical man thoroughly lacks the capacity to delude himself an entirely false narrative with such potency. Therefore, in the absence of such competently instinctual self-delusion, man must confront any moral concerns and rational tendencies head-on before he is able to embrace and exemplify the Machiavellian mindset. Number three, the logician's problem. The rational not only reduces his power by justifying himself, but likewise, he alienates others by correcting their logical inconsistencies. Like an autist, the logician's primary concern is veracity over finesse. Naturally, this offends, and thus in matters of persuasion is a grave faux pas. Indeed, it is more difficult for the rational intellectual to socialize and be liked for the fortitude of his character than it is the lovable idiot. For logic is charmless, challenging, and taxing for a largely illogical population. People oft feel threatened by that which they do not understand. Intellect beyond their comprehension is, of course, no exception. Boundless fear pulsates through the veins of the ignorant and the egotistical. The ignorant fear the unknown, and the strongest of egotists are inhabited by a paranoid loathing for anything that could remotely challenge their sense of supremacy. If you have ever been disrespected for sounding intelligent, you were on the brunt end of this. You made the mistake of thinking you were in fair and open-minded company, while indeed you were not. Unlike the logician, the idiot does not become preoccupied with their thoughts. The intellectual, on the other hand, is often immersed deep in abstract thought and thus must switch into another way of being to be socially competent. 
the thought wavelength symptomatic of higher cognitive functions would appear to be incompatible with the social demands of the lower. As such, the logician must turn their charm on, that is to say, subdue the honest and mechanical thinking part of their brain, instead turning on their duplicitous social brain. Idiots have little thinking brain to turn off. They're always in social mode. Women likewise thrive in social mode, as socializing is their bread and butter. That is to say, women tend to be socially focused and group-oriented, as they're more dependent on the group than men are. In the ancestral environment where men could hunt and survive alone, a woman would almost certainly perish without tribe acceptance. As I stated in a previous paragraph, historically women were dependent on men. You don't survive if you're a dependent and an introvert. Hence, it is my theoretical contention that women have evolved biologically to be more extroverted than men on the whole. Their inclination toward excess chatter and preference for work which is social rather than solitary in nature is indicative of this. Regardless, I find it tangentially relevant at this point to stipulate that introverts have a tendency to be more intellectual than extroverts. Introverts live to think and innovate. They prioritize solitude. Extroverts live to play and consume. They prioritize company. Naturally, the prior is more typical of man and the latter of women. The seasoned Machiavellian learns how to switch between his rational brain and his social brain so that he can interact as necessary. This is utilitarian ambiversion. The merits and demerits of logic are so in conflict with the merits and demerits of Machiavellian logic that the rational man's primary mode of thought, logical reasoning, impedes his ability to be socially effective. One cannot be socially effective without being sufficiently Machiavellian. Not all Machiavellians are strategists in the strictest sense, but all socialites are Machiavellian. When you are logical, you are easy to predict, and lack the tools necessary to predict those of a less rational disposition. Instinctually, Machiavellian logic is counterintuitive to man's sense of innate, natural logic. I believe this is one of the fundamental reasons many a man struggles to understand the feminine. You see, unlike raw logic, Machiavellianism is an alternative system of logic. It is the logic of popularity, dominance, and duplicity. As a logician, you are easy to understand because you do not selectively utilize chaos. Your rationalism makes you easily read and predictable. The Machiavellian is harder to predict because where it suits him, he will disobey, distort, and undermine logic with cunning and poise. The Machiavellian is adept in sophistry, whilst the logician is not. Number four, the rational Machiavellian. Machiavellianism is aligned with pragmatism and self-betterment, not truth or a set of ethics. That is to say, Machiavellianism is most concerned with maximizing one's efficiency as far as power acquisition and personal well-being is concerned. You will scarcely find a Machiavellian who is not a pragmatist, but you will find plenty of rational idealists. In many circumstances, logic and fact are an obstruction to the Machiavellian motive. They expose duplicity by contradicting narrative with fact. And so the Machiavellian practices caution with the logical, but they are less easily duped. People who understand logic but do not obey its authoritative confines will try to exploit your logic. They are what I refer to as rational Machiavellians. They tend to be men blessed with high reasoning faculty, but adept in the ways of cunning, and as such, can switch between rational and Machiavellian modes of thought. 
Such ability is rare. Other than myself, a figure who comes to mind that appears capable of this is journalist Milo Yiannopoulos. This ability is a binary cognitive modality that, in my view, all men looking to build or maintain power should embody. The rational Machiavellian thinks logically about the challenge they are going to present to you. With their rationalism weaponized, they will predict your potential responses in correlation with what they know of your character. Your potential responses are easily preconceived because running on the assumption you're irrational, it's easy to lead you to certain answers. Your answer will be X or Y in theme, categorically deductive, because you are rational. Rationalism makes you easy to predict because you will scarcely say something irrational and hence intellectually spontaneous. Rational Machiavellians are logical only when necessary. They realize the rules of the social game and that cunning's success rate far surpasses logics when it comes to social and political matters. Yet the rational Machiavellian also realizes the logician is enslaved to logic, and that as such, his source of strength is likewise his most glaring weakness. Inversely, the rational Machiavellian can weaponize logic where beneficial. He is not confined to the realm of rational thought whilst attempting to actualize his imperative. As such, he can influence the rational and irrational with equal measure, pandering to both the logician's need to understand and the idiot's need to belong. The rational yet socially incompetent man has a mind that operates far differently from that of the common idiot. Yet it is not the intellectual that dictates the rules of the social game. It is the socially Machiavellian, the charmers and the hucksters. The rational thinks the strong justify because there is strength in justification. The rational sees justification as a chain of reasoning. The rational believes logic is good. The rational therefore concludes, if one can create a chain of reasoning conducive to their opinions, then said justification is strength, virtuous even. To the rational, an inability to support one's opinions and choices with a traceable succession of chain reasoning is weakness. Indeed, an inability to support one's opinion with cogent reason is incompetently fallacious, but this alone is insufficient. The ignorant rationalist, safe in the knowledge he is more logical than his opponent, hastily deduces that he has the upper hand, that he is the superior, and therefore the victor. The fatal flaw in his reasoning, of course, is conflating logical supremacy with social victory. Women, for example, are of inferior logic, yet they often beat men in arguments. In the social game, being correct does not guarantee you victory. If your opponent is incorrect but more cunning, they will win. Irrationalism wielded correctly is its own strength. You see, you can be indubitably wrong about all manner of things. You can be unfair, and you can have shitty token reasons for the decisions you make. Yet, if you say it with charm, guile, and the expressiveness of passion, with the correct gambits played, it does not matter you will win. Humans do not reward he who is most logical in social matters, but rather he who is most impressive. Suffice to say, Machiavellian gambits and persuasive rhetoric often triumph over the autistic charmlessness of logic, fact, and statistic. Who cares about the logicians, or if they're right? Fuck logic, it's a nuisance! Words uttered by an arousedly angered ex-girlfriend of mine. Alas, in victory, where logic benefits one, one utilizes it to improve the validity of their arguments. Where logic opposes one's desires, logic is conveniently ignored, omitted from presentation. Instead, 
The underhandedness of Machiavellianism and its emotional rhetoric peddling is utilized. Rhetoric is convincing in its persuasion because the majority of people are primarily governed by emotion rather than reason. Hence, when certain emotive responses are triggered, such people are sucked into the asserted viewpoint, no matter how factually incorrect it may be. Number 4a. Switching between logical and Machiavellian cognitive modalities. People will shit-test you to gauge whether you're worthy of respect before even deigning to address your logic. If you can't hold frame, the socially powerful, who are often stubborn, won't even get to the stage of disputing your reason. To dispute your reason, one must respect you enough as a person to engage intellectually. Therefore, those who disrespect you will not dispute your reason, but rather your character. Most people argue with logic, or underhanded social Machiavellianism. The best debaters, e.g. Milo Yiannopoulos, calibrate to the seriousness of their opponent. If the opponent is being obtuse and offensive, the debater will undermine and ridicule. If the opponent is at least attempting to make a reasoned argument, it will be refuted with cogent counterargument. Those who use social dominance rather than reason to win their battles will not be taken seriously by the reasonable. If you are autistically logical, people will humiliate you, you will seem clueless, and your appeal will be damaged as you appear socially incompetent. As such, one must be socially, and manipulatively, intelligent enough to pass shit tests, as well as possess cogent reason for formulating an argument that can hold up to scrutiny. Improper debate, such as taunting and reputation smearing, almost always precede proper debate. Proper debate is the transparent disputation of theory or decision-making via assertion and counterargument. Although not so deliberately outrageous as Milo Yiannopoulos, another person who achieves the balance of social competence and logical rigor, in my opinion, would be British politician Nigel Farage. Argumental effectiveness thus lies in mode switching between duplicitous and logical communication. It is only through the embodiment of this duality that people looking to see someone get burned will give your reasoning the time it deserves, whilst the nerdy relish in the observation of logic triumphing over dogma. One must be completely cunning, as well as logical, in order to defend their reputation and deliver effective arguments. As one is exposed when unable to sufficiently handle another's insults, they will likewise meet eventual exposure if all they do is insult absent a capacity to form cogent arguments. If you are not very good in either capacity, you are easy to ridicule and refute. If you're good in one aspect but not the other, you're an average debater. If you're good in both aspects, you're difficult to humiliate or refute with reason, and hence a powerful debater. Of course, as institutions of learning do not overtly teach Machiavellianism, most people don't tap into this vein of knowledge. And those, like Milo Yiannopoulos, who instinctively understand and behave in accordance with this dynamic thus, appear godlike to both idiots and intellectuals alike. If you attend a debating society, or something of the sort, you will come into contact with philosophical models, logical fallacies, and the structure of argument. But knowledge pertaining to the rules of the social game, such as how to emotionally endure your opponent, humiliate them, and leave the audience in awe, is absent. The instruction of sophistry and rhetoric is limited, dominated almost exclusively by a small elite of aristocrats and political families. In fact, the well-meaning yet foolish logicians who take center position in logic and philosophy circles 
will discourage you from deploying effective Machiavellian social gambits. Effective methodologies for ridiculing the opposition and winning audience approval almost always take the form of logical fallacy. Deliberately misrepresenting them, straw man, insulting them, ad hominem, or pressure flipping, to quoque, are effective because they shake the opponent's resolve, but, due to their fallacious nature, will be penalized rather than encouraged in debating circles. This is the logician's weakness. By being fixated on the logical incoherence of such maneuvers, he fails to perceive their Machiavellian utility. Fallacies or not, these methods of sophistry are very effective, and one is wise to employ them where an otherwise sound debate is not possible. People are far more enamored by the outrageousness of theater than they are the monotonous recount of reason and statistic. Should you wish to deploy statistics and hit a home run with your argument, it is wise to dazzle your opponent first. Number five, closing remarks. When one works in a position where justification is expected, promoted, or part of the job description, it is still despised. This is why those low on the corporate totem pole are disrespected and often unconfident. The justification inherent of their job demands causes their peers to view them pathetically. Justification, no matter the circumstance, is seen as low-value behavior, an admission of guilt, a symptom of inferiority. Even when you are simply doing your job, or merely wish to engage in an honest informational exchange, if the other is not on your wavelength, you will be perceived as caring too much or trying too hard. Social calibration is everything. Social calibration consists of altering your behavior based upon the level of respect your company has for you. If you're with an idiot or irrational Machiavellian, this is most people, including women, downplay the importance of logic. Duplicity dominates. When you are an open-minded and logical company, you can be less duplicitous. Adjust your style of communication to reflect the disposition of your company. This will allow you to hold the upper hand and ensure you don't get played. Mental Models Abundance versus scarcity. If you can imagine yourself being happy in spite of rejection, then the power of no becomes moot and you achieve outcome independence. Due to the formation of the system we live in and how it's set up, predominantly social inequality and counterproductive institutionalized ideology, the energy that people tend to exude is negative. Negative energy acts as a repellent. If others are chronically negative, you will want to avoid them, and likewise, if you're poignantly negative, then others will do their utmost to avoid you. Negativity is synonymous with powerlessness, and powerlessness is the ultimate form of scarcity. Scarcity is never attractive, neither socially nor sexually. If you encounter a positive person, they are either aware of the game and have a reasonable amount of control over their own life, privileged and or intelligent enough to be free too stupid to understand their own powerlessness, or actively rejecting reality and superimposing projections of fantasy in its place. Many people, mostly beta men and women, opt to hold the idea of fantasy as a preferred reality. They are good at rationalizing desire and idealization as fact, regardless of if such ideas have actually been experienced or proven. People for the most part tend to be negative because without delusion or escapism to keep them preoccupied, they find themselves existing in a state of scarcity. These are the people who live their lives feeling powerlessness. When one feels so powerless that their ambition for power is lacking, 
They avoid reality by hiding in fantasy. They avoid reality rather than accepting it and using the awareness from said acceptance to build a foundational power base. These are the types of people who always feel like they are the effect of things rather than the cause of things. This is a mode of thought which is inherently beta. It is self-defeating and avoidant rather than pursuant in improvement. A rejection of the truth is the quickest path to weakness. In the working classes, people often don't have enough money to pay their bills. They don't have enough money to pay their rent, and yada yada. This is the reason why a great number of the overall population is negative. For it is the working class which is the biggest social group. By the very nature of its own powerlessness, the pyramid is always widest at the bottom. In the lowest social groups, basic needs cannot be met, and the inability to fulfill these needs results in morbid frustration, which translates into parasitically contagious negativity. This is the most concentrated form of scarcity in modern society, and thus is where negative energy particularly thrives. The working class view the world through a filter of scarcity materially, and this seeps into their social interactions, causing them to perceive people from a position of inferiority. Move up to the middle class, and the problems of material scarcity are no longer such an issue. Basics are afforded, as are things considered luxuries to the working class but essentials to the middle class, such as a nice car, a decent smartphone, and a trip abroad at least once a year. However, even with basic needs met and disposable income at the ready, the middle class have been sold a much more opulently luxurious lifestyle than the one that they live. For it is the very nature of consumerism to create an insatiable appetite to desire luxury goods. The middle class suffer from luxury scarcity, which is essentially working class material scarcity on steroids. You can blame MTV music videos and aggressive advertising for the middle class's luxury scarcity. And thus their powerlessness is not based upon scarcity in and of itself, but ultimately their negativity stems from jealousy. A desire to have only the very best society has to offer married to an inability to possess that certain Bugatti Veyron or condo with a sea view. They envy the rich, they ignore the poor, and legitimately feel poor. Because by ignoring the real poor and focusing all their jealousy on the rich, within their own world they are, by contrast of the subjectivity of their own perception, the least wealthy. The irony is that these people have far more than at least half the population who live in working poverty do. The scarcity mindset has a proclivity to permeate the middle, although it is not based on rationalism like it is with the working class, but rather jealousy. Move up to the rich upper class, and of course you find an abundance of resources, yet still very many of these people live in a mindset of scarcity. They have so much wealth that they have neither material nor luxury poverty. They have love poverty. They're not sure who to trust. They're often paranoid, cynical, and skeptical because they have a lot to lose. The insecurity of the rich also manifests as comparing themselves to the super rich. Five million doesn't seem like much to a guy who has a friend with 50 million. Although five million is enough to not have to ever work again and still live good. Whilst a middle-class individual compares themselves to a millionaire, a millionaire compares himself to a multimillionaire, and a multimillionaire compares himself to a billionaire. Who does a billionaire compare himself to? A god, a mega-celebrity, or an esteemed historical figure. There is an insatiable appetite for glory manifesting a scarcity among most of humanity, even among the wealthy. Scarcity within the rich manifests as insecurity. 
there is always someone richer or more powerful. And if they aren't focusing on those better than them, they're focused on those slightly less powerful than them posing a threat to their position and possessions. Being rich is stressful, but for different reasons. And the scarcity is emotional, not material. The scarcity of human connectivity is what the rich tend to suffer from as a merit of being so materially rich. Trust becomes an issue. Are they only interested in me because of my money? And isolation thus tends to become a part of life, even in matters of family. The truth is, no matter what position you hold in society, the de facto energy that people tend to carry is negative in its nature. Negative energy is everywhere, which is why a positively charged person is a beacon of light in a sea of darkness. People will be attracted to the positivity you choose to exude whilst in an abundance mindset. However, that attraction will not always be welcome. Some will want to befriend you and spend time languishing in your aura, exchanging jokes and good feelings. Others will be outraged you're so happy and will try to pollute your energy with negativity. Many times in my own life, I've been accused of being too energetic or so lively or questioned pretentiously, are you high or why are you so happy? By people who are attracted to my positive mind state for the wrong reasons than the right, with jealousy rather than enthusiasm. There is a sizable demographic of society permeating class boundaries who have become perfectly comfortable with misery, and they perpetuate it, often unknowingly, as a matter of habit. They are payday loan borrowers, college teachers, and yacht owners. Avoid these people at all costs, and more importantly, avoid being that person yourself. The quantity of people in your life is irrelevant to the energy you carry. The quality of people in your life is what is relevant to whether you possess a positive or negative aura about yourself. Every person should have a purpose, and they should all add something. The no-gooders have no place in the lives of great people. They are a faceless audience, hating and criticizing. They're spectators unworthy of companionship. They are neither supporters nor players. It is far better to have an absence of negative people in your life whilst concentrating on harnessing your own energy into a default positive state rather than endure the demeaning negativity of the helpless, the dysfunctional, the irritating, and the spiteful. There are many types of toxic people out there, and they are all too easy to encounter. These are the kind of people who dwell in the recesses of hopelessness, moaning about shit they can't change, criticizing things, taking offense to harmless conversational topics, an inhibition and reticence to laugh. They're sometimes unmotivated, often directionless, usually always critical, and almost always easily irritated, while simultaneously incredibly irritating. These people are toxic people, walking danger signs. You should be the center point of your universe. You must be me-centric. This doesn't mean you have to be a shameless narcissist empathically pronouncing your individuality obnoxiously for the world to admire, but you should be self-centered with a stringent criteria for who you allow into your life. If you want to make a quality person out of yourself, naturally you want to associate with other quality people too. Avoid low-quality individuals who add very little distinctiveness to your life. When interacting with the rabble, keep your interactions brief and suchant. The average person tends to live in scarcity. Whilst building an abundance mindset, you don't need the construction of your perception being co-opted by those who live in a psychic prison. Ultimately, 
The difference between those who view the world through scarcity and those who view it through abundance is liberation. Those who view the world through scarcity are mentally imprisoned, often oppressing themselves with thought patterns that lead to negative feedback cycles, whilst those with an abundance mindset are doing well to improve their situation. People with a scarcity mentality tend to exhibit an exudance of desperation resulting in the pursuit of social dead ends, chase women. They cannot hold frame. Spend a lot of their time living mentally in the past, going over and over things they cannot change. Have profound regrets which shake their confidence. Are averse to taking risks. They hold themselves back. Low T. Do not believe in their ability to succeed, which presents itself as reticence, procrastination, and a lack of confidence. Fear rejection from people. Require external validation from the group to feel content. They're insecure and lean on others. Ultimately perceive themselves and the world around them as lacking where it matters, happiness and opportunity. People with an abundance mentality tend to exhibit nonchalance and indifference. Sometimes they're arrogant, typically uncaring of small matters. Replace women. They hold frame well under pressure. Spend a lot of their time living mentally in the future, only coming into the present for breaks. Have profound ambitions which fan the flames of confidence and acts as motivation for action. Tend to be adrenaline junkies who get off on high risk and dangerous behavior. High T. Are obsessive about success and confidently bold. Expect rejection from people. Validate themselves through their self-improvement. As long as they keep momentum, they're secure with themselves. Ultimately perceive the world around them as rigorous but conquerable. The scarcity mindset is the beta mental model. The abundance mindset is the alpha one. Ultimately, the only person you have is yourself. And if your mind is co-opted by scarcity, you are compromised and in need of fixing. When the good times roll, remember that good friends and good women are bonuses. If you become reliant upon such fancies, you will grow weak in character. Don't rely on these people. Choose these people to come along for the ride, but don't rely on them to give you a ride. Self-reliance is a key component of abundance. Although some of this may sound frighteningly morbid to many at first glance, it can be incredibly therapeutic when one considers just how toxic a huge swath of society really is. Interact on your own terms, cultivate positive energy within yourself, and avoid the negative that presents itself in others. If you're not in control of who you interact with and how, the negative energy of others will infect you from the inside out, and your mind will become an enemy of your desire. You will sabotage yourself. Being a lone wolf is simple. It's a clean slate. There should be no room for men and women in your life who don't contribute value to you. Be ruthless with your selectivity. Success is of more paramountcy than popularity. Civilization and Feminist Dogma Every war, when it comes, or before it comes, is represented not as a war, but as an act of self-defense against a homicidal maniac. George Orwell Number 1. Introduction Asking, why do people hate the red pill, is like asking, why do feminists hate anti-feminists? It's simple. We are viewed as the opposing team. By reading red pill content, you become aware of the masculine's unfiltered societal viewpoint. 
by agreeing with it, you accept a system of thought which undermines the status quo of feminine primacy. Thus it is so that through mere act of association with the manosphere, devoutly feminist society deems you sinfully tainted. The Church of Feminism will tolerate no blasphemous dissent, for anything that disagrees with feminism is by its own interpretation misogynistic. By asserting the masculine viewpoint as primary, or even a valid counterpoint to the feminist viewpoint, you are immediately identified as a misogynist. This means the rabid social justice horde that currently passes for society is out to hang your head on a pike merely for having a different set of beliefs. Expressions of thought incongruent with the feminist narrative are so socially unacceptable at present that they are deemed invalid merely by merit of being non-feminist, let alone anti-feminist. Number two, controlling the social narrative. It is the job of both feminists and their enablers to prevent unfiltered masculine ideas about gender from polluting the mainstream consciousness. The societal hive mind therefore rationalizes away anti-feminist argument as backwardly patriarchal, meaning irrelevant, bigoted, and outdated. You will then hear at some point along the verbal cacophony that will invariably occur that people like you are the reason feminism exists. In reality, the reason young boys and men seek out the manosphere and its wealth of knowledge to begin with is because of the gross negative impact that feminism has had on them, as well as those around them. Despite the damage feminism has wrought across the developed civilizations of Earth, many an individual has become personally invested in the ideology due to psychiatric problems. Feminism is like any ideological dogma. It creates codependency in the individual as they live by the tenets of the ideology. When a sense of identity is built upon a belief system, removing the ideology the self is built upon causes inordinate psychological problems for the individual. The most radicalized segments of feminism are perverse relationships between an ideology that commands blind obedience and a mentally unwell individual who needs a platform to grant their hysterical ramblings legitimacy. However, not all believers of the feminist religion are so staunch, dedicated, or ideologically self-aware. There are many who do not self-identify as feminist, but buy into much of the ideology's belief system due to its cultural ubiquity. The institutional embodiment of feminism throughout society's key social infrastructure, education, the workplace, the media, etc., is to blame for the surreptitious invasion of the societal value system. Those of you with a bachelor's degree or higher, in particular, have been absolutely drowned in feminist propaganda. The more educated people are, the further from reality they tend to be. This is not because they are stupid or spectacularly unintelligent in any way, but merely because they have spent many years in an institution which unabashedly peddles feminist rhetoric. Effectively, most of the population, whether they consciously realize it or not, agrees with the idea that the genders are equal. To feminists, all people are equal, but some people are more equal than others. It is with the veneer of equality that they, in somewhat hypocritical fashion, implement laws and social practice which artificially elevate women by giving them special treatment, a privilege that we do not likewise extend to men. Number three, cultural Marxism. Men as the bourgeoisie, women as the proletariat. So what's the reasoning for this unjust disparity and why some people are more equal than others, you wonder? To be concise, 
The idea in play is much similar to that of the concept of white guilt. Except we're dealing with gender, not race. So it's not exclusively reserved to white men, but rather men as a collective block irrespective of race. When it comes to feminism, the race card does not trump the gender card. The way institutions are biased towards women today stems from the popularized feminist idea that men owe women due to man's supposed barbarism in the time before feminism. In essence, it's the falsification and fabrication of the modern historical narrative to give the construction of male guilt an air of legitimacy. It is by avenue of said guilt that women get an easy ride in today's society, with such social inequality justified as a reparation owed to women due to the conduct of our forefathers. This is how feminist society justifies benevolent sexism. That, and of course, maintaining the pretense that one of the most privileged class of human beings to ever live is constantly oppressed. This victim narrative is maintained in spite of reality so that the ideology can continue to finance itself and acquire power. This is why myths such as the pay gap and rape culture are continuously perpetuated and will not go away. It's not about protecting women. It's about socially engineering the destruction of the family unit to consolidate power and money for the movement. Essentially, feminism only continues to exist so it can feed itself, segregate the population, and profit various industries, e.g. divorce lawyers, big business consumerism, etc. To surmise, feminism in its current form is about maintaining double standards stemming from tradition that benefited women whilst remaining antithetically intent on the destruction of double standards from our past which benefited men. It is ultimately the restriction of male freedoms, expression, and sexuality in order to make way for the unrestricted social freedoms of women. This is anti-civilizational in nature. Number four, the problem with third and fourth wave feminism. Instead of helping men and women understand each other better in spite of our differences, Feminism encourages and thrives off facilitating decadence. It uses newspeak, such as liberation, to define the decadence it encourages, when said liberty is really nothing more than a farcical spin on anarchy. To these people, the feminist viewpoint must be hegemonic. They don't care how many young men, girls with daddy issues, and grown men that feminine primacy run amok adversely affects. As far as they're concerned, the masculine viewpoint is backward, barbaric, misogynistic, and unworthy of listening to. They are bigoted, close-minded, and oft have a vested interest in maintaining the narrative of contemporary feminism despite its falsifiability. Some are this way through product of having invested so much personal time into the ideology, others due to prevailing business interests. Unfortunately, the generations feminism has infected are irreversibly so. Once someone has been indoctrinated into an ideology, it's very hard, if not almost entirely inconceivable, for all but the most Socratic of thinkers to regain lucidity. Number five, feminism and parallels with Rome. Ancient feminism served as an omen of decline in Roman civilization past its peak and until its fall. It wasn't the sole reason for the fall. Notably, that was due to the Romans hiring a mercenary army that could no longer afford to pay due to tax avoidance. However, ancient feminism did nevertheless aid in the acceleration of social decay prior to the total disintegration of the civilization. As women were given the right to own property and practice law, among other things, divorce became commonplace, and the social fabric of the society splintered. 
feminism promoted, and continues to promote today, individualism over collectivism, much to the detriment of the empire then, and, likewise, the Anglo and European civilizations of today. And so it seems that there appears to be a cycle in which a civilization becomes so prosperous that it can afford to begin to entertain notions such as women's rights. Notions that in a more primitive civilization are simply so unworkable that they cannot function for even a brief period of time. This is similar to how in pre-civilization, only patriarchal tribes innovate enough to develop into fully-fledged civilizations. Feminism is built upon the success of patriarchy. It needs it to exist. Not just so it has a boogeyman to scapegoat, but so that society is even prosperous enough to seriously consider the profitability of empowering women. Without even a hint of irony, however, the precedent of women's rights has unintended consequences. It gets so out of hand that no amount of awarded rights is ever enough, and the excess of freedom awarded to women corrupts their natural deferential femininity. Before you know it, you get the behemoth of radical feminism that we have today pecking at the pillars of civilization. The sexes begin losing interest in each other as the perversity of women masculinizing and men feminizing takes hold. Only within the grandiosity of irony do we see the same ideas and sentimental notions that contributed to the downfall of Roman civilization happening to us again today. History does indeed repeat itself. Number six, society, single parents, and the alpha widow. One way in which said downfall is characterized is by the lowering of the birth rate. Another is the lack of incentive afforded the typical man to produce a taxable surplus due to a lack of sexual opportunity, as well as a legal and social disincentive to start a family in youth. In its stead, what we see is a return to primitive sexual behaviors, a return to harems. Many men fail to secure regular sexual access in a long-term relationship with a suitably stable female, and thus by extension of that, a chance to ensure their lineage. Concurrently, swaths of women flock to compete over and share the phallus of society's highest value men. And so they overlook their social equals for the ever-aloof apex males they pine for, only to be cast aside, broken, unable to appreciate their sexual equivalents. Women who have been in this situation, and that is the majority nowadays, harbor resentment toward the sexual equal they are forced to settle with, for he is of lower value than men they have previously slept with. This goes some way in explaining why female infidelity has become as rampant as it is. A relationship with a lesser male is a safety net for a woman to fall back on while she explores her true desires elsewhere. In this aspect, copious mating partners before long-term cohabitation marriage spoils women. It makes their propensity to commit infidelity a near certainty. Contemporary women, in their egotism, are prone to mistake the capacity to sleep with a top-tier man with the ability to secure the commitment of such a man. When they fail to do so, being physically and mentally diminished at such a time, they are forced to reevaluate their value and make a realistic choice out of the options available to them. As such, Women are dissatisfied with the irreconcilable difference between the tier of men they are able to sleep with and the tier of man they are able to secure the commitment of. It is the hubris of women to believe these metrics are identical, when indeed, they are distinct. As such, our women develop an appetite for higher tier men via frivolous sex and youth, 
but are unable to ascertain such a man emotionally when they're ready to settle down. If it's a choice of being independently miserable, or miserable with a man who cannot match up to her spoiled tastes, women oft opt to settle. Misery loves company, and thus the spoiled woman resigned to the idea she cannot acquire the man she truly desires will seek an inadequate male to impart her parasitic misery upon. Once Chad has been tasted, Billy can never hope to satiate her hypergamy. In healthy civilizations, sexuality is policed for the betterment of the nation-state. Female hypergamy is subdued rather than encouraged. People date and pair off within their league, starting a family with a person of correlating social worth. As an effect of such quelled hypergamy, you get the monogamous nuclear family unit that was quintessential to traditionally Christian Europe and North America. In healthy societies, women prioritize the needs of the family before their own immediate needs. They are encouraged to have children so that their innate solipsistic selfishness can be channeled into the growth of the child, and subsequently the caretaking of the family. Men lead these families. Women maintain them. In decadent societies such as the contemporary West, men and women prioritize their individualist desires above the collectivist needs of the family. Often this is because they have not come from, or are not members of, intact family units. Number seven, critical thinking and dogma. Feminism is very much concerned with controlling and policing speech. Since its inception as a simple civil rights movement, it is metamorphosized into an incredibly Orwellian ideology. By circumventing the feminist monopoly on gender relations, the manosphere is an affront to the dogmatic nature of the politically correct society we live in. You see, it is our discussion of gender differences outside the tightly controlled feminist paradigm that threatens the dogma's narrative. Dogma is like religion. Anything that brings its validity under scrutiny is not tolerated. Scrutiny is not something contemporary feminism fares well under. Too much of it exposes its core for the insanity that it is. Contemporary feminism requires blind faith and groupthink. And so, like many ideologies, is intolerant of having its underlying premise brought into question. Being dogmatic, it is emotion-based, not reason-based. To be clear, when I say the manosphere circumvents the feminist monopoly on gender relations, I don't just mean through discussion, but likewise through behavioral choices designed to limit our exposure to feminism. We go about this by claiming our masculinity and autonomy through hyper-independence. With social independence and clarity of mind, it is difficult to be controlled. Thus, by employing ourselves, improving ourselves, and interacting with women on our own terms, we can live our lives sovereign outside the purview of haranguing, henpecking feminist oversight. We are not a movement. We are a personal philosophy. We do not fight for change through political activism or a coup d'etat. We don't try to change society to fit our needs. But instead, we introspect and make improvements to ourselves so that we may thrive in spite of society's support, or lack thereof. Feminism, like many a social ideology, is narcissistic and irrationally arrogant. It is devoid of introspection. It will not allow itself to be undermined at any cost. Of course, like many ideologies, which started with a seemingly noble ideal but later morphed into faith-based dogma, if you don't toe the feminist line, you will be ostracized from society. 
people will say horrendous things about you because they don't like you or what you stand for. They don't like you because you are one of them and not one of us. You are not a person to them. You are an other. And as history has taught us, if you are considered an other, witch burnings, then you're not welcome in society. If you tried to build a church in Saudi Arabia, they'd in all likelihood chop your head off or demolish the church. Well, being a red pill man in a feminist country is the equivalent of being a Greek Christian in Ottoman Muslim-controlled Constantinople. Witch hunting and doxing abound, reasons for which I never answer questions about my age or what I do for a living. For your own sake, adherents of this philosophy should not post any of their personal information online. Without the internet, a platform such as this wouldn't even be possible. Your anti-feminist thoughts would be treated like church construction projects in Saudi. They would never see the light of the desert's day. Number eight, the importance of the internet. Whilst the internet has been effective at spreading feminism, particularly to poorer countries, it has likewise served as a medium for fighting against it. The internet, my friends, is truly beautiful. And we should all be thankful that we got to live through its prominence firsthand to see what it can do for us as a species. The internet is the best source of free information, and likewise serves as the most superior platform for ridding oneself of dogma and expressing oneself. This entire blog is testament to that. Such a publication would never have gotten off the ground on any other medium. That is the beauty of the internet. It is only because of the internet you have the opportunity to read things that fall outside the realm of political correctness as fed to you by your corporate media and government schools. The internet gives you the opportunity to question your beliefs and refine them in privacy without demonization or social ostracization. With the internet, you are exposed to thinking outside the dogmatic, stringently moderated bubble of political correctness that society enforces. You can be free if you so choose presuming you are strong enough to handle the burdensome consequences that freedom brings. This essay is probably hate speech in postmodernist Sweden on the sole principle of daring to defy feminist tenets, which, in case you didn't know, has an almost religious ideological status within Nordic nations. Political correctness appears to be a euphemism for views, opinions, beliefs, and language use which fall within a spectrum of predetermined institutional acceptability. The recent changes to the language, such as calling normal people cis, is perverse, ominous nonsense with emphatically Orwellian undertones. Like the fictional language of Newspeak, it is what happens when ideology attempts to hijack language in order to make it comply with its narrative. In light of this, one should endeavor to read 1984, as well as another of Orwell's texts, Animal Farm. If you read either text before discovering the red pill, Read them again for an enhanced perspective. Orwell's dystopian fiction warned us that the cultural calamities of today would come to pass. A cursory glance at the moral decay of the Roman Empire would likewise have informed us feminism is symptomatic, if not a cause, of decline. Orwell's writings were, and are, incredibly prophetic. Which is why, as a man who rarely reads fiction, Orwell is one of the few fiction authors I ever recommend to anyone in good faith. As much of the theme of this article is Orwellian in nature, it seems only right to end with another such and pearl of wisdom from the man himself. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. George Orwell
What to learn and how to learn it? These are the questions. A room without books is like a body without a soul. Marcus Tullius Cicero. Number one, introduction. Contrary to what may be impressed upon the reader by the length and intricacy of my essays, I greatly value simplification, especially when it comes to learning something. There are so many great books to read and so many interesting topics to discover that there simply isn't enough time to absorb it all. As such, when one is voracious for knowledge, they must make choices in what they learn, and then strive to absorb what they have deemed worthy of learning as quickly as they can humanly learn it. Knowledge is not power, but power potential. And rather, it is the application of knowledge and not knowledge itself that constitutes power as we think of it. As such, it is in one's interest to accrue as much knowledge as possible in order to increase their power potential. Time, however, is as equally pressing as it is finite, if not because it is finite. And thus, the net maximum potential power accumulable decreases in direct proportion to the amount of time expended on things extraneous of one's current learning objective. To simplify this statement, the more time one spends learning any specific thing, the less time they have left on the earth to learn other things. And those things you're not learning could be, unbeknownst to you, more conducive to your personal power than the things you have chosen to learn. Cost-benefit analyses are our friends. But whatever we choose to learn incurs a sunk cost, and thereby it is in our interest to choose both wisely, to make the most informed decisions we're capable of in choosing what we learn, and to choose quickly to avoid the unproductive inertia of indecision and procrastination. Naturally, the accuracy of a choice tends to increase with the slowness with which it is decided. And thus there's an argument to be made that slower, more accurate choices are superior to quicker and more sloppily made ones. Regardless, momentum is the achieving man's friend, procrastination but his foe. And so in light of this, there's an even greater argument to be made, that in the pursuit of growth, it is better to simply make a decision than it is to make none at all. For even in failure there is education whilst in stagnation there is little besides regret and the illusion of safety. Ultimately, the goal of the most ambitious self-actualizer is to make smart learning choices in as little time as possible, whilst learning the chosen thing with maximum depth and understanding in the shortest time possible. Most outwardly agree learning is important. Fewer actually expend the effort necessary to actively learn, whilst even fewer seek to tinker with their learning methodology in order to optimize it. I, of course, am of the belief that in order to truly be the best that one can be, that simply doing is insufficient. Doing is necessary, but more importantly, one must seek to refine how they do. Learning is no exception to this need, and rather, I actually think of it to be the thing that epitomizes this sentiment. Number two, experience versus reading. But I am. Is knowledge even important to the accumulation of power? Surely experience is superior to reading. There is indisputably great value to knowledge, but knowledge bereft of means of implementation is unactualized of purpose. In much the same way raw materials owned by nations without the means to refine them see the potential of said materials wasted. Experience is vital in matters of the heart and the body, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Simply put, experience is overrated for there's not enough time in this life to experience everything to the degree sufficient enough to master it. This is why we have specialization, for it is better to be a master of one trade than a layman in all, 
This is also why we compress time in the form of books, for they allow us to derive the core lessons of a thing without requiring us to invest the time necessary to fully experience it. Life is literally too short to experience everything to the degree necessary for a man to truly understand and master it. For beyond a certain level of proficiency, one falls victim to the law of diminishing returns. The power of books lies in their ability to have us learn from those who have already invested the time to become an expert at a thing. They are almost like surrogate mentors, if you will. And so in the grander picture, they are time-saving devices. Although in the heat of immediacy, many do not view books as such because they can take considerable time to ingest. Nonetheless, irrespective of the time it takes a man to read a particularly lengthy and intricate book, it would take him even longer to live the things the writer did in order to form a conclusion of equal authority. By the time you become a Wall Street trader, a pro wrestler, or whatever it is that will teach you the lessons you want to learn, you could have read hundreds of books that would have taught you more than you would have learned from investing an equal or greater amount of time actually trying the thing for yourself. Personal experience is inefficient, because you do a lot of things that don't work in order to discover what does. Whereas the success derived from the experiences of others can be distilled into knowledge that saves you from making the mistakes necessary to arrive at the same conclusion. Books that draw knowledge from a wide data pool can pattern recognize trends to derive principles. And these principles can in turn be used by the uninitiated to increase their odds of success. It is this macro approach to knowledge which allows a person to draw inferences with a level of accuracy that would be simply impossible to derive where they rely solely on personal experience. Take the bell curve, for instance. The employee of statistics garnered from thousands of studies allowed this book to make conclusions with a level of accuracy beyond that which any single person is capable of achieving. How is this so? Quite simply, more data. Anyone with even a basic understanding of statistics realizes that absent willful falsification, greater sample sizes lead to more accurate findings. People trust experience more because it can't be faked. And Lord knows academics fabricate all kinds of data to support their ideological agendas. And yet, irrespective of this, experience is the most certainly overrated. I'm not trying to debase the necessity of experience, for it certainly has value. Undoubtedly, a great many things requires experience in order to be truly understood. However, there are only so many experiences a person can have. And one's experiences are often incomplete in the sense that they're the byproducts of inability rather than achievement. Likewise, people of greater mind can teach us things we don't notice or struggle to articulate and consciously understand. And so reading not only saves us time, but more importantly, it allows us to pierce the universe more deeply than if we were to remain unlettered. It is this quality of the book that makes it irreplaceably additive to one's time on this earth. This is the value of secondhand knowledge, and unlike experience, it is often undervalued owing to its indirect and vicarious nature. I think this to be incorrect, and rather that it is the unread experience junkie who is the fool rather than the individual who complements their living with the wisdom and discoveries of men greater than they. To give an example I'm sure most of you will relate to, a divorced man knows enough about marriage to accurately forewarn younger men of the risks inherent to the endeavor. One need not actually go and get married and undergo the same pains, trials, and tribulations that millions of other men have in order to validate the finding. This would not only be extremely deleterious to one's mental health, but likewise a terrible use of their time. 
This notion really exemplifies how knowledge can trump experience in educating one on what not to do. For when a person has internalized a long list of what they shouldn't be doing, the number of mistakes necessary to get where they want to go is reduced exponentially. Yes, often to find the answers on how to specifically do a thing, a person need merely repeatedly attempt a thing whilst altering their approach with each iteration. But to discover what not to do and decrease the odds of failure from the get-go, this is where reading provides quite the boon. Number three, refining reading, the art of summarizing. Okay, I am. I understand reading is necessary to augment my success. But if reading is the default state of learning, how do I optimize my learning process to learn even quicker? So in the paragraphs prior, I detailed my philosophy on learning. Now I will detail the steps I've taken in light of it. Effective businessmen know that in order to scale up and earn truly ludicrous sums of money, they must learn to delegate. Things they become accustomed to doing when they were small should be assigned to others in order to free up their time for grander tasks. I apply this idea to learning. If a person can reduce the time taken to learn a thing without compromising on the depth with which they understand the thing, they can gain a huge edge over the competition. So, rather than constantly read books, I look for people who have gone to the effort of fully understanding a book, plucking out its gems, and explaining what they mean in a summarized manner. This way, I can profit from their time investment and learn exactly what they've learned in only a fraction of the time. Books condense life, but summaries condense books. And thus, pound for pound, I believe reading, or at least actively listening to summaries given by people who have already fully read a text is something that will provide me with the greatest intellectual return in the shortest amount of time. I believe very few people are doing this. And yet this one thing alone can give a man a great edge in this game we call life. This is the beauty of the digital age. If you know where to look, you can find time-saving services that would simply not have been possible before the advent of the internet. Podcasts are an obvious place to begin streamlining the learning process. I particularly enjoyed the Tim Ferriss podcast. The only drawbacks with podcasts is the advertising and predominance of socializing acts is no more than fluff to the budding learner. Podcasts are as such, in my view, more semi-educational easy listening than they are concentrated catalysts for self-growth. A step up from podcasts are audio summaries. An audio summary is a person summarizing the key points of a text they've read and articulating these findings to the listener. I particularly enjoy Illicertus' YouTube channel for this purpose. The advantage audio summaries have over podcasts is how the speaker directly delivers the information, absent the fluff of banter or social observation you can expect from podcasts. Finally, we have text summaries. The main reason I believe text summaries to be superior to audio summaries is because audio can play in the background, allowing you to tune them out while you do other things. Text, on the other hand, demands your full attention to be imbibed, and thus cannot fall victim to your need to check social media. It's actually quite difficult to find anyone going through the hassle of summarizing books into text summaries. However, I managed to find an online book club which is doing exactly this. Number four, in closing. I wouldn't listen to a podcast in lieu of reading an actual book. However, if you're reading to grow rather than for self-pleasure, I highly recommend integrating audio and particularly text summaries into your audio didactic toolkit. If you're not improving, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're losing.
By speeding up your rate of learning, you vastly increase your chances of success. Don't hold yourself back. The Art of Negotiation Negotiation is not a policy. It's a technique. It's something you use when it's to your advantage, and something that you don't use when it's not to your advantage. John Bolton Number 1. Introduction. Defining a Negotiation Negotiation is a Machiavellian ordeal, and yet many devoid of honed Machiavellian ability are required to engage in it. For the avoidance of negotiation is untenable in a world of finite resources and competing wills. Sure, one could go out of their way to avoid negotiations and survive, but survive is about all they'd manage, as inept negotiation is a trait of the weak, not the powerful. What is the nature of a negotiation? A negotiation is effectively a quid pro quo trade discussion where two or more parties dispute terms until each is satisfied with the position of the other. Anybody with even rudimentary law study under their belt knows this comprises the essence of a contract. The objective of any contract is to come to a deal. A deal is a mutually beneficial arrangement consciously enacted within an agreed-upon framework. Most deals at the individual, rather than corporate level, occur between two people. When larger organizations are involved, the number of people party to the deal expectedly increases. A successful deal, in the truest sense of the word, is no less than two or more distinct parties, be they people representing themselves or organizations, who believe they're getting what they want on terms deemed equitable rather than injurious. This is in contrast to a heavily biased deal, better characterized as blackmail, although often euphemized as a deal, which is an arrangement that takes place under the enforcement of economic duress, leverage, or aggressive, inequitable, ironclad legal bullying. So what is Machiavellian negotiation? It's the optimum way to obtain the most resources and best conditions with as little capital risk and responsibility as possible. Number two, perceptions in negotiation, friend or foe. Negotiation is fundamentally a dispute of disparate desires dictated by the perception of what constitutes fairness. Each party attempts to manage the perceptions of the other in order to come to an agreement both deem sufficiently equitable. Although in negotiation it is the acquisition of specific objectives that underpins the reason for negotiation, perception is equally important in affecting what kind of deal is struck, or if one is even struck at all. For example, say you have two men. One's named Harry and the other's called Bill. Harry grows an exotic grape that only he can source in the continent. His client Bill has no commodity, but has deep pockets. Money is not as scarce as Harry's grapes, assuming enough wineries and consumers value his grapes. This is a seller's market, so Harry can charge whatever he likes so long as his price to the customer works out cheaper than importation of the grape via freight from overseas. When Harry goes into a negotiation, he knows his buyer Bill needs his grapes more than he needs Bill's money. Bill is not his only client. And clients prefer local produce rather than waiting for things to arrive on a plane which may be damaged in transit. Harry knows if the other person cannot provide a sufficient sum of money or otherwise incentivize him, that failing to come to a deal with Bill would not harm him. In a seller's market, a pool of customers, buyers, demanding a specific quality is plentiful, whilst the pool of sellers able to provide said quality is minimal. Conversely, in a buyer's market, 
Harry's produce would not be worth much because he either has so many competitors he has to sell cheaply and operate at a loss, market saturation, or simply nobody is interested in what Harry's selling, and thus there's no viable business operation to be had. In our fictional scenario here, we're in a seller's market. This means Harry has tighter control over his pricing and can force the consumer to cough up higher sums without damaging his business's profitability. Harry used to sell a vine of grapes for 90 pence each to his customers. But since the local competition went out of business, he hiked his prices to a pound and 80 pence, selling a marginally lower volume than he used to at a more profitable operating cost. In simpler language, Harry sells less quantity but makes more money because his price per unit has increased enough to offset the reduction in sales volume the price hike caused. If Harry's sales dropped to the point where the price per unit did not offset the reduction in volume, he'd have to decrease his prices in order to increase volume to a profitable margin. In this scenario, Harry would be experimenting with price points in order to find the profitable zone, the perfect price where the highest price per unit is found, the precipice on which a subsequent price increase results in overpricing as indicated by a sharp decline in sales. Harry finds his perfect price and thus begins to make so much money that he can afford to keep his grape bubble inflated, while still giving some of his favorite customers the old 90 pence rate. Being in a strong position, Harry is able to economically implement his prejudice into his pricing system. Friends and old clients he has favorable relationships with get the 90 pence rate. Strangers get the 1 pound and 80 pence rate. And he is able to outright refuse to sell to those he doesn't like. In a seller's market, the buyer has the privilege of buying. The seller is not privileged to sell because demand for the seller's goods are high. Simplistically, in a seller's market, the seller is the most valuable party. In a buyer's market, the buyer is most valuable. Bill, on the other hand, is a winemaker and desperately needs Harry's rare, locally sourced organic grapes to help him make a very expensive wine. Bill was a charming Machiavellian and befriended Harry a while back by taking him out to dinner and paying for his food gaining favor with Harry whilst he was satiated with steak and slightly inebriated on the very wine Bill needed Harry to source grapes for. Bill was clever, figuratively as well as literally giving Harry a taste of the business he was in. As they got along so well, Harry began selling Bill grapes at the friend rate of 90 pence per vine, increasing the profitability of Bill's winery. Bill was satisfied with himself that all those restaurant dinners and well-timed jokes had paid off. However, disaster struck. One time, Harry brought his daughter along to the restaurant, not realizing Bill was a sexually predacious yet shredded 45-year-old pickup artist. Harry's daughter, full of daddy issues because he's a workaholic, later matches with Bill on Tinder. From here, she begins enthusiastically fucking daddy's totally hot and rich business associate as a textbook act of sordid female rebellion. Eventually, she falls for Bill, but because he failed to commit to her, she, in her inevitable upset, tells her father of their liaisons. Upon discovery of Bill's adultery with his daughter, Harry refuses to continue selling Bill the grapes he sorely needs for his company's leading product. Bill, desperate for the grapes, then offers Harry 10 pounds per vine, far above the inflated market value Harry usually commands. Yet Harry refuses to accept. Why? Because at this point, Harry is more interested in hurting Bill than in making a profit from him. The perception of the other party has become so negative that a want for destruction 
has become greater than a love of profit. Moral of the story. It doesn't matter if two people want something from one another if either party disdains the other too greatly. In the absence of respect, a desperate party accepts extremely inequitable terms, or it's simply impossible to reach consensus. In the presence of hatred or a need for revenge, otherwise logical and desirable outcomes are rejected in favor of Scheidenfreude. Secondary lesson. Do not shit where you eat. Girls related to high-value business interests aren't worth the hassle they can cause. Income is more important than sex. Number three, the narcissism of negotiation. Feelings of entitlement heavily influence the outcome of a negotiation. A person with a strong sense of pride or entitlement will get as much as, or more, than they're worth. Whilst a person with low self-esteem and thus sense of entitlement will get as much as, or less, than they're worth. People with low self-esteem are exploited by people with high esteem for profit. Those with high self-esteem are so compelling in their conviction to those with low self-esteem that in awe of the egotist's confidence, the one with low self-esteem will pay extra, do more work, or generally agree to a predacious deal. In a self-perpetuating feedback cycle, this reaffirms to the narcissist they're worth more than they really are because they're good at making weak people agree to bad deals. And this reaffirms to the unconfident that they aren't worth much because they're not very good at getting what they deserve. The ancient Chinese philosopher Confucius said, Whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. Confucius was right. If you don't value yourself or believe you deserve adequate compensation for your work, you will be a poor negotiator who is not adequately compensated. In feeling this way, you unwittingly and disadvantageously assign higher value to the other party, causing you to give them more than they deserve, or to accept less than you deserve. Somebody who values themselves excessively, a grandiose narcissist, is the opposite. They assign less value to the other party by actively devaluing them. And if said person accepts this devaluation, the narcissist exploits this weakness and leverages it for everything it's worth. The highly narcissist are as such prone to giving people less than they deserve, because their intrinsic devaluation of others means they're always undervaluing people, making them great hagglers. Often a successful businessman is simply a person with high self-esteem that is skilled at finding people with money and low self-esteem, insecurity being an incredibly profitable emotion. An example of such a relationship would be a ripped personal trainer on steroids in San Francisco targeting obese Silicon Valley programmers and basement-dwelling World of Warcraft players. All the trainer needs to do is convince a loser to sign a contract to get his juicy commission. He knows the loser's throwing their money away because they won't even turn up to work out. But as far as he's concerned, if these people want to bootstrap his lifestyle by subsidizing his gym and increasing his income, that's their loss and his gain. He feels no guilt at all. He will gravitate between this demographic and any other low self-esteem and lazy demography, such as the over-50s cat lady who wishes to feel like she's doing something about her weight without actually putting the effort in. When you have two people with low self-perceived value negotiating, the people will get what they're worth, and negotiations won't last long. When you have two people with high self-perceived value negotiating, the people will get what they're worth, but negotiations will be more aggressive. There will be more shit-testing, e.g. narcissistic dismissals, negs, and pressure flips, and things will last a lot longer. 
Whoever fails a shit test loses credibility, and this is leveraged by the winning party for better terms. If nobody fails a shit test, then Narcissistic Party A has won the respect of Narcissistic Party B, and Party B will feel like Party A is worthy of what he actually deserves, rather than the lesser amount he normally assigns through his default devaluations. Know the other person's options. Do they have alternatives? Are they dependent on you? If they have no alternatives, you can ask for whatever you want and extract as much as they can feasibly afford. If they do have alternatives, you can tell them the alternatives are inferior and play to their ego by telling them if an inferior service is what they're after, they can save a buck and visit your competitor. By referring them to the competitor, you subtextually communicate you're in a seller's market, demonstrating your elite status and lack of neediness in one fell swoop. This lets them know you're not dependent on their custom, and thus dispels the common entitled customer mindset. In turn, increasing their likelihood to purchase at the highest possible price point on the terms most agreeable to yourself. This reverse psychology will likewise lightly offend anybody who considers their need or problem serious, and thus is likely to convince them it's worth paying more to get a quality of service equal to the seriousness of their problem. After all, big problems require elite solutions. Number four, the discount generosity gambit. Retention, fairness, and discount. If they pay up but cannot afford your services in the future, offer a tactical discount in an attempt to retain their business. Say 10%, no more than 20%. Do not offer a steep discount as it damages the perception you provide an elite service. Elite services are not cheap services. Everybody innately knows this. In fact, people often become suspicious of self-touting elite brands that go on sale, as it harms the perception of their value to the point people believe the sale items are bogus, inauthentic, or otherwise somehow diminished in quality. If you offer the correct discount, you may not only retain the custom of your client as your service is now within budget, but they'll feel special they get a discounted rate and perceive it to be charity because you usually charge so much. Your tactical generosity plays on their ego and increases their affinity for you. If you are in a position to set your own rates, this is of course nonsense, as your rate is what you're willing to accept intersected with what the market is willing to pay. There is no rate set in stone because you pull the figure out of your ass after morning coffee. When one sets their own rate, they do so by being in a seller's market, or at least leading the buyer to believe it's a seller's market, getting as much as they can via the exploitation of said mechanism. When a customer is about to walk, honestly or as a bluff, the idea is to re-entice them into continuing their business with you for the new maximum amount they're comfortable with. You deploy the discount gambit to feed their ego, feeling warm, fuzzy, and proud of themselves. They like you more and keep doing business at the newer, marginally reduced rate. This makes sense to a seller in a buyer's market, as new buyers are difficult to acquire, and the profit sacrificed from the loss of the customer is greater than the amount lost from lowering price. A customer who keeps trying to get discounts is an administrative pest. Only offer the discount if you're in a buyer's market. If you're in a seller's market, you can easily replace the customer, and thus, there's little point in trying to retain them. Number five, opening offers. If they make the first offer, do not try to renegotiate for the highest price possible if they open with an amount you're happy to receive. Likewise, if the other party is incredibly narcissistic, 
this is a risky endeavor that can easily backfire. The reason for this is if you try to get more, they may feel you're being unreasonable, get outraged you're trying to rip them off, and then lower their initial opening offer, or even refuse to do business with you. This is, of course, not a probable outcome when dealing with the low self-esteem, but should be considered when dealing with the powerful. If you don't particularly covet their opening offer or are highly confident you can get more, you should haggle. If you're happy with their offer, indulging greed risks a devaluation of the opening offer, making it wiser to accept rather than haggle. People who are serious about wanting your product or service will make a strong opening offer. The exact kind of customer you don't want is the one who tries to nickel and dime you, as one must consider the opportunity cost incurred from all the administrative back and forth. Exemption. If the person you're dealing with is very powerful, agree to do something for free and be owed a favor. Be overt, you'd prefer a favor later. No covert contracts. If they refuse to owe you a favor, give it to them cheaply so you can leverage your generosity later on. When dealing with the powerful, it is better to be paid in favor rather than money, as their favor is more effective at getting you out of a tight spot than their money. You can get money from anybody, but it's not every day you have the opportunity to gain favor from the powerful. Favor with the powerful always trumps money, as even losers have money. Even if it's not much, they still have some. A lot of people will want you to make the first offer, because they want to see how much you value your services. This is basically a probe to see how narcissistic you are and how much they can lower your price. To get the maximum amount, you must always demonstrate you value yourself highly. Start with a very high price, and they will offer you the highest price they are willing to pay. Generally speaking, people like to offer you 50 to 75% of what you asked for to feel like they got a bargain. So you can preempt this exception with your opening offer. Ask for three times what you value yourself. If you value yourself at $50 an hour or product, ask for $150. Then if they offer you half at $75 an hour, you got 50% more than what you value you or your product at. If they offer $100, you got 100% more than you value you or your product at. Of course, the other party doesn't know what you really value yourself at. This is what they're trying to ascertain whilst refusing to make an offer until you state an opening figure. When you were asked to go first, the other is trying to undercut you. Overvaluing yourself makes you immune to this as it conceals this crucial information. And overwhelmed by the exorbitant amount you quote, they offer the most they can afford, which is a typically generous yet far lower sum than the astronomical figure you quoted. Number six, general maxims. If you are surprised someone has made you a really great offer, do not let on. Hide your excitement, act entitled, even slightly offended to see if you cannot squeeze the other party for a little more. Should faux offense not gain you more, drop it and retain a decorum of entitled agreements. E.g., yes, I find this agreeable. Sounds far more composed than, that's so awesome! Adopt the decorum of the prior rather than the latter. If you feel you're taking more than you deserve, do not let on. Hide your guilt, remain stern, but be friendly. Remember Confucius, those who think they can't, can't. Meaning those who think they do not deserve, don't. Number seven, in closing. As you have probably intuited in your reading, buyer-seller marketing principles can be transferred to dating. 
Always remember, negotiating is psychological. The rates, the time allotted, whether a deal is made, and whether it will be repeat or one-off is almost entirely psychological. There are no firm rules. Everything is open to the manipulation of perception in the quest to get the most favorable terms. Work out if you're at an advantage or not by deducing if you're in a buyer's or seller's market. Then, calculate the external party's degree of narcissism and negotiate accordingly. The three R's, romanticization, realization, and responsibility. The red pill community, and more generally speaking, the manosphere, have something of a love-hate relationship with women. I don't love women as a collective, but seeing them for what they are to the bare bones, I have learned to accept them. In the rare instances they occur, I can appreciate the minority of well-raised women that'll contribute positively to my life. I can see how men are idealistic romantics that need, crave a woman in their life to have a kind of connection they can't have with another man. But by the by, women are nothing to be lauded or worshipped. Western women in general are just shitty people. Red pill men have all the reasons in the world to hate women when it's made painfully clear how they operate and how much bullshit they manage to get away with. As unpopular as that notion is, it is far from unjustified. Being hateful, however, is merely cathartic, not constructive. Long-term catharsis is a sign that you're stuck in the bitter phase in your understanding of women, rather than progressing onward to accepting their limitations, while simultaneously self-actualizing. Being continuously angry will not help you improve yourself. For the sake of your own mental health, you have to look past the flaws of modern women by being extremely selective with which ones you'll reward with relational commitment. Ultimately, you must employ RP strategies to hold frame and maintain dominance with women who do manage to make the grade. It is in this way that you can learn to enjoy their positive attributes whilst mitigating their negatives, and if necessary, subsequently drop them like hot shit when they cross the line. Which of course many, if not almost all, will at some point. Imposing your boundaries is imperative. If you catch a woman young enough and she is merely uncultivated, as in lacking depth and desirable non-sexual traits, rather than the alternative, which is the complete and utter corruption of the psyche caused by the fucked up feminist culture we live in, then you may just have a shot to make such a woman into what you want her to be. How is this accomplished? By training her to be someone that's likable rather than just fuckable, otherwise known as long-term relationship game with an aspiring red pill woman. Even so, not every man is willing to take a woman on as a full-time project alongside his own self-development. A woman who has taken the initiative to make herself worth a damn regardless of the value of her pussy is vastly superior to one who hasn't. She didn't need a man to take up the reins of father figure and teach her how to be a good woman. An effort which involves fighting her every step of the way on each and every detrimental habit she's acquired over the years. There is, however, a phenomena I have noticed with a number of veteran red pillars. The total inverse of bitterness. The proud proclamation that, in spite of the volume of knowledge and wisdom they have amassed on women, they have come to love women. Accepting women for who they are and managing them. Adjusting your management style to complement their individual quirks is one thing. Loving them as a collective just for being women is something completely different. An appreciation of the feminine form is a refined predilection that all men possess, but allowing this to take hold as love 
is futile. If taking the lens of political correctness off women to see them for who they are has caused you to love them in spite of the perversity that is the modern state of femininity, something is definitely wrong with you. Just how shitty do women need to be for you to not love them? Or are you going to be a hopeless romantic no matter how low the bar is set? When I hear a red pill man say, I love women, plural, rather than a particular woman, it strikes me with all the familiarity of Stockholm Syndrome delusions. It's almost as if there is a desperate urge to love women as a collective in such a man, an irrational ideal, rather than simply to love a specific woman where conditions permit. Stockholm Syndrome is defined as the desperate need to love someone in spite of their abusive nature. With some red pill men in the acceptance stage, and blue-purple pill men, this concept is applied to women as an ambiguous collective rather than any one particular individual. It goes something like this. You so badly want to see the best in modern women and crave to be in love so much that you'll consume yourself in the self-accountability that the quest for masculinity and self-improvement has taught you. Then, in your romanticism, naively project your newfound sense of hyper-responsibility into your relationships with women. Your only inherent responsibility is how well you objectively govern, not any affront to your governance. If you lead well, but she fails to follow, that's not your fault. It's implied that a good leader will not lose influence over their subordinates, but that is not necessarily so. If someone thinks there are better alternatives than you, or is simply delusional, they will leave or otherwise rebel against you. In your endeavor to embody all things masculine, placate your ego to realize that you cannot control everything. You can merely stack the deck in your favor. It's as simple as that. I'll give you an example. Say you manage a company, and despite meeting all your quotas and ensuring the staff are looked after and have their grievances met, one member of staff persists in disliking you. Is it your fault that this particular member of staff doesn't like you? Are you going to blame yourself for not having read How to Win Friends and Influence People? Or is this person simply influenced by extraneous factors outside of your control? You wouldn't blame yourself when one of your employees disliked you despite great leadership, so why blame yourself when things fuck up with your woman after you played your cards right? Men in love lose cognitive clarity. Even the most masculine of men, burdened by the responsibility of romantic leadership, blames himself for any mishaps that occur, whilst the woman is all too happy to kick back and agree. Romanticism seems to profoundly cloud otherwise lucid reasoning within men. This is the delusion I see with some of the guys in the acceptance stage. All-encompassing hyper-agency, rather than holding women to account for their shortcomings. This is a blue pill error that even the most seasoned masculine man will make. And it is something that will kick you in the ass with the precedent that always taking the blame sets. The feminine imperative, combined with masculine pride, has convinced even the most red pill of men to take the blame for all manner of things, in spite of the irrationality of such a policy. And it's pathetic. For your own happiness and sanity, you should learn to accept women for who they are. But... Realize they possess far more negative qualities than they do positive. Women are an unending source of drama. They are a lot of hassle. And they need constant management. It is for this reason we refer to women as the most responsible teenager in the house. When you romanticize them in any way that deviates from reality, you're adding tinges of blue into your view of women. To love them, 
worship them or even prefer spending time with them over men, despite having read a lot of Manosphere material, is not red pill at all, but really a purple pill mindset that's gone full circle. To elaborate, it looks a little something like this. You began as an average, uninformed guy. You were blue pill in your beliefs because you were ignorant and had no success with women. Then you 180'd to being red pill, but bitter, angry, or otherwise indifferent, but well-informed about the nature of women. After employing some asshole game, you had some success with women and got yourself a relationship. She then managed to wear you down and began to betify you over time. And as a result, you've 180'd again into a purple pill hybrid. You have red pill knowledge, but you find it easier to give your chick free passes and blame yourself for her misbehavior rather than put your foot down. You confuse leadership with being a hegemonic scapegoat. You're the willfully ignorant guy blaming yourself for any mistakes that occur because you believe women have no agency and merely reflect how you've made them feel. You don't hold her accountable because you believe that by being the leader, everything automatically becomes your fault. This is hyper-agency. For those who don't know what hyper-agency is, it is the male tendency to assume responsibility, fault, for things that weren't directly the man's fault but through some indirect slippery slope reasoning, can be convincingly rationalized as being his fault. Men who have taken the red pill and gone down the path of accentuating their masculine qualities to then successfully land themselves a relationship tend to be hyperagents, whilst plate spinners are more likely to throw caution to the wind. Hyperagency is the inverse to the feminine hypoagent instinct, which, you guessed it, is the predilection of women to divert responsibility for their actions away from themselves. She will take credit where it's due, but where fault is to be allocated, her instinct is to blame shift and shirk accountability. Being accountable to yourself and acquiring discipline and honor to keep yourself on track in the quest for masculine self-improvement is fine. Holding yourself accountable for a woman's fuck-ups, however, is as blue pill as putting them on a pedestal. It implies they are better than you are because they are beyond the realm of fallibility. Yes, you can influence a woman's behavior greatly, any masculine man can. But assuming all responsibility when anything goes wrong is irrational and just plays into the narrative of the feminine imperative, the innate Machiavellian tendency women possess to absolve themselves of blame. If accountability is important to you, then blame is attributed where it is due. Logic will best deduce where blame should be attributed. Treating yourself as a catch-all for anything that goes wrong is not the answer. And it doesn't make you a real man or a proud man. It makes you an honorable idiot. Ultimately, as men, I think we're fighting our instincts. Our instincts are to romanticize women, care for them, provide for and protect them, seeking sexual favors in return to pass on our genes, whilst our culture has made our instincts deadly to our own survival. All of this is exacerbated by cultural Marxist indoctrination, which makes us ripe pickings for women who have been trained to be less empathetic, more narcissistic, and more predatory towards men. Women are manageable when their egos are kept in check. This is why nagging works. But allowed to get high on you-go-girl instant validation streams for the tiniest and most asinine of things, such as a selfie, they become increasingly self-centered and unmanageable. Combine men's predisposition to romanticize women with women's Machiavellian nature, and what we have is a disaster waiting to happen. A culture that brainwashes men to give in to their romantic instincts, whilst dissecting and supplanting their masculinity with feminine sensibilities. 
these sensibilities then get mixed in with the male protector provider instinct, masculine romanticism, in such a way as to make them hard to tell apart from one another. In part, this is why guys sometimes pathetically bicker over what being alpha is, especially in relation to women and long-term relationships, which are no doubt the trickiest sphere for any man, let alone a seasoned red piller or a manosphereian. Feminism, as institutionalized as it is in society, is responsible for exacerbating female narcissism. It encourages women collectively to celebrate and exemplify their worst traits, hypergamy, entitlement, and solipsism, in order to make us collectively, as men, responsible for their material betterment, training them to hang us out to dry rather than learn to appreciate us and work with us despite our differences. Part of the facilitation of this conditioning is to create conditions in which women can't love, trust, or pair bond to any one single man. This is accomplished by encouraging them to be sex positive, aka huge sluts. It is a well-established maxim throughout the manosphere that the more partners a woman has had, the less capable she is of bonding romantically to any future partner. Now, this is great if you want casual sex, but it's bad if you actually want to be in love or start a family. A woman who's had many dicks and relationships, no matter what she rationalizes or desires, is near incapable of pair bonding. These women are often bitter. They feel owed something from their chain of suitors as a symptom of their latent narcissism, and view men collectively as an arbitrary segment of the population that can be exploited for self-gain as a result. All of this only makes the conscious choice to love women as a collective even more insane. Without a patriarchal society in place to enforce honor on women, our freedom to love women is diminished because they have the ability to destroy us and get away with it. Allowing yourself to love a woman should not mean tussling with the devil. Due to the vast chasms that separate masculine and feminine nature, equalism fails in matters of love. This is predominantly caused by three things. Number one, femininity's lack of reason. Number two, femininity's lack of honor. And number three, perhaps most importantly, the ability of the female mind to so easily rationalize away atrocities as necessary for its emotional well-being, and therefore perfectly acceptable. This is what is known colloquially as hamstering, and it ties in with the earlier point made about the feminine predilection to absolve herself of blame in order to avoid cognitive dissonance. This instinct is so strong that it will even override the decision-making process of women that otherwise possess strong logic. By making them our legal and social equals, without there being our rational and ethical equals, we have upset the balance between leader and follower, captain and first mate, and left ourselves susceptible to their whims. What has this done? Destabilized society, leading to massive increases in divorce rates, the ensuing post-divorce suicide of what was previously a husband, and a whole bunch of other fucked up crazy shit that no attractive woman's sweet voice, long hair, and gentle touch is worth. For all the flack they get, the men going their own way are in some ways the rational ones here. They're rational in pursuing their own happiness, but irrational evolutionarily as they implement the destruction of their ancestral genetic line. If there was ever a war between nature and nurture, this is it and its socially engineered human reproductive kryptonite. Part 4. Aphorisms Machiavellian Maxims, Part 1. 
If an injury has to be done to a man, it should be so severe that his vengeance need not be feared. Niccolò Machiavelli Number 1. Introduction Rather than my usual dense and lengthy prose, I treat you to the insights of a Machiavellian. Originally written as reminders for myself, rather than as an essay for the consumption of my readers, they can be likened to the Machiavellian's equivalent of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Enjoy! Number two, the maxims. Number one, any and all weaknesses can be used against you, and in conflict, will be. As such, weaponize your weaknesses by making them known. Hide them in plain sight. Wear your weaknesses like armor. Flaunt them, and you deprive your opponents the use of ammunition that would otherwise discredit you. Two, if weakness is speculated, deny it. If weakness is known, spin it. If it is directly observed, dismiss it. Should it look profitable, leverage it for status in the victimhood hierarchy. 3. Justification can only exist in respectful exchanges. When you are disliked, justifications are deemed excuses, your guilt predetermined. 4. Do not defend against your attackers. Attack them. Justification is a Machiavellian fallacy. Do not justify, stipulate. 5. People are like stocks. Acquire assets, avoid drop liabilities, and ignore market rumors. Acquire inside information wherever possible. 6. The only difference between the toxic and the unlucky is the unlucky bring you down inadvertently. Avoid both. 7. Attacks reveal intent. Defense reveals priority. You don't defend the unimportant. You don't attack allies unless it's a decoy. This simple concept can be extrapolated to any situation. 8. The battle of the sexes is the only war where crushing the opposition isn't victory. No, a man must avoid checkmate and stalemate by continuously putting his woman in check. This, and only this, is victory for the Union. 9. Everything is war in a different set of clothing. Love, business, politics, wherever there are competing interests, there is a battlefield. And wherever there is a battlefield, there is war. 10. When things fall apart, be ready for total war. 11. Don't insult the king in the throne room. If you must insult him, do so only amongst those you are confident share a mutual disdain. Les majesté is dangerous. In this context, a king is anyone you rely on socially, politically, economically, etc. 12. Lust of all kinds begets deceit. Desire is good until it isn't. 13. Machiavellianism is the art of wielding power. How it's wielded is determined by the wielder's morality, or lack thereof. Don't blame the strategy. Blame the soul of its employer. 14. Machiavellianism does not determine one's morals. One's morals determine the use of Machiavellianism. He who believes he is too moral for Machiavellianism is no more moral than he is an idiot. 15. When people don't like you, their questions are attacks. Sometimes these attacks are disguised as concerns. Other times they are blatant. Whenever you're asked a question, gauge the legitimacy of the question. Insincere questions must be met with insincere answers, if any answer at all. 16. 
Do not trust those who overwhelm you with questions. They may simply be very curious, but it's more likely they are searching for dents in your armor. The line between curiosity and interrogation is thin, and people do not wear uniforms. 17. Doubling down on your position or ignoring the challenge usually trumps an apology. 18. Ignore your ignorer. To ignore your ignorer is to enter a war of most silent attrition. Who will speak first when silence is golden? Whoever speaks first loses. Whoever speaks first admits they need the other more, no matter what plausible deniability they may retroactively invoke to disguise the fact. 19. Ignoring is a non-response response. No response is a neutral response. Lots of neutral responses hint at a negative underlying sentiment. For people who like you, struggle to ignore you. 20. Where bullying fails, charm succeeds. And where charm fails, bullying succeeds. One should substitute in hard power when soft power fails, and vice versa. 21. People are enticed by the allure of circumvention. Operating outside the rules carries its own thrill. People feel good when they get away with things. 22. The trick to dealing with psychopaths lies in possessing a full awareness of the conditionality of the transaction, for they are scant in sentiment. 23. Not knowing what a psychopath wants from you is equivalent to operating within a perpetually detonating flashbang. If you cannot discern what they want, see stealings. 24. Being charming is the result of happiness or success, not of virtue. It is amusing that people oft fail to make this distinction. They conflate charm with virtue. As a matter of prudence, the more charming, the more dangerous. 25. Whether you realize it or not, the powerful are always testing, always evaluating. They yield milligrams of respect only to those who consistently pass their evaluations. A fluke of success will not earn you their respect. It'll get you a glance. 26. Real victims suffer in silence. Posers pretending to be victims do so to gain money and status. Be wary of loud victims. They are almost always play-acting. 27. People don't want to be betrayed, but most will betray if it suits them. The standard of morality people demand of others is higher than that which they demand of themselves. The coldest psychopath will demand the deepest altruism and the most devout loyalty. Beware cultishness, then. 28. Interpretation is always perverted to suit the agenda of the interpreter. Whoever controls the flow of interpretation dominates. 29. Trust the average woman as much as you trust your government. Occasionally, there's a good candidate. Most aren't worth your vote. 30. Strong personalities hate the weak and distrust the strong. A man who considers himself a king rarely wants to share the room with another. 31. Never hesitate to work on your verbal dexterity, vocabulary, and comprehension. Debate lots with people who don't matter. Strong articulation is a form of soft power. 32. There's a lot of freedom in stupidity. Playing dumb is oft profitable. 33. Too much perception can niggle a person's paranoia. Perceptiveness is threatening to those aware of their ill nature. 
in suspicious company, appear less perceptive. 34. Appraise a rule by its worth. Do not defy a rule for the sake of defiance. Some rules protect the ruled. Others protect rulers. Distinguish. 35. We're all players in a game. You're a player or a piece on the board. You move or you're moved. You play the game or the game plays you. 36. You can't not play the game. You don't beat the game by denying the game. Death's the only escape from the game. Until then, play well to live well. 37. Beware the encroacher, an individual characterized by ubiquitous and uninvited insertion of their person into your social affairs, out of a need to be noticed in the desire for social elevation, whilst his status is inferior, he will extend his hand with a smile. Once he moves past you, he will forget you. His intentions for you are not sincere. You are merely a piece in his ascent to success. 38. The encroacher targets your popularity in an attempt to siphon it through association. 39. The encroacher gives themselves away by either A. Absence of pleasantry, or B. Lacing their pleasantry with subtle and sporadic undermining. Do not be an encroacher. The quickest way to garner the favor of the powerful is to befriend them, not to irritate them with persistent public exhibitions of your self-ordained superiority. 40. Charm trumps more aggressive manipulations when dealing with the perceptive. The perceptive like being charmed. Their awareness of the seduction does not negate its effect. 41. Always appeal to incentive, never to mercy. 42. Too much perception is threatening, even intimidating. People distrust you when they realize you are as perceptive as you are, even if you mean them no ill will. When people know you have the potential to destroy them, like nuclear material, they quarantine you. 43. Legitimate concern is rare. More often than not, displayed concern is a means to an end, a foot in the door to seize the moral high ground. 44. Anything you say can be twisted to make you look bad, and it will be, because that's power. It's how hearts and minds are won. Politicians and the mass media do it for a living. Neither is starving. 45. If you have a firm grip on Machiavellianism, it will be difficult for women to exploit you. On the flip, they'll be harder to love, too. 46. Narcissism is anti-fragile in the sense it makes no distinction between love and hate, only attention and inattention. 47. The secretiveness of privacy drives people mad, even if there's nothing to hide. The reluctance to reveal creates suspicion. To ensure the safety of a secret, the existence of the secret must be kept secret. As soon as somebody becomes aware of a secret they know not the nature of, they will be compelled to unearth it at any cost, thus threatening the secret. 48. The difference between an interview and an interrogation is merely a matter of perception. All interviews are a collection of shit tests. 49. When you are being interrogated and don't realize it, the topic will rapidly change in order to determine what you're most uncomfortable with. This topic will then be focused on. I call this vulnerability reconnaissance. 50. You nearly always learn more about somebody in an informal setting than you would a formal one. 
Paranoia, and thus mental defenses, are greater in formal settings. To truly get to know somebody, you must mingle informally. Of course, as much as this opens them up, it opens you up, too. 51. Advice that wasn't asked for is rarely appreciated, let alone followed. Don't give advice that isn't asked for. Don't advise everybody who asks for your insight. Only advise those you think worthy. An, I don't know, will keep things civil without forcing you to waste time. 52. When you advise people, you reveal more about yourself than you perhaps realize. After all, your advice reflects the core of who you are. It reveals the why and how, rather than merely the what. What's are easy to change. Why's and how's aren't. They're more identifying. 53. If you want someone to implement your ideas, it's better to make them think your idea is theirs. Plant the seed. Give them credit for your thinking, and they'll believe their repetition of your idea makes it their creation. 54. The quickest way to gain people's trust is to help them. 55. Liking animals and being religious creates an appearance of uprightness. People of ill nature wear these appearances to disarm through disguise. 56. People don't dislike being tricked. They hate realizing they were tricked. Tell lies that cannot or will not be investigated. Compulsive lying is the perfume of the histrionic fool. 57. Beauty oft conceals bad intentions. 58. Be magnanimous to friends, civil to strangers, and ruthless to foes. Furthermore, know who's who. Machiavellian Maxims, Part 2 The lion cannot protect himself from traps, and the fox cannot defend himself from wolves. One must therefore be a fox to recognize traps, and a lion to frighten wolves. Niccolo Machiavelli Number 1. Introduction Back in December, I published a collection of Machiavellian maxims that precede the assortment here. As for the creation of yet more maxims, only time will tell. With that said, I present the latest set of Machiavellian maxims for your reading pleasure. Number 2. The Maxims Number 1. Hijacking is a special kind of Machiavellianism, for it wears the agenda of another whilst pursuing its own. Like a metaphorical Russian doll, it hides an agenda within an agenda. 2. Read between the lines. If you can deduce why somebody is asking a question and you do not like the reasoning for their question, do not deign an answer. Ignore or dismiss traps. Do not fall into them. 3. When someone attempts to undermine rather than refute you, they're the enemy. 4. Undermining is personal. Refutation isn't. Refutation communicates, I believe you're wrong due to the findings of the available evidence. Undermining communicates, I'm going to humiliate you because your opinions invoke my disdain. Refutations are logical retorts. Undermining is interrelational violence. Learn to distinguish between the two, for they oft appear similar. 5. Bending the rules is no more than the abuse of technicality to circumvent the spirit of the rule without violating its letter. 6. Love doesn't conquer psychopathy. 7. Only pick fights that'll yield profit. Pettiness will erode your credibility. Fighting on many fronts will exhaust you. 8. 
The crab bucket mentality is pervasive. A jealous friend is a betrayal waiting to happen. Know when to cut the gangrenous limb. Do not allow the sentimental nostalgia to sustain poisonous ties. 9. If you are drawn into something emotionally, the odds of damaging your reputation and engaging in regrettable acts exponentially increases. 10. Many arrogant men believe anger is the safe emotion they can display without real consequence. This belief is folly. Men should endeavor to be mindful, for this will allow him to rein in unruly emotion. 11. He who does not control his emotions is puppeteered by them. Strict adherence to emotional data is tactical death, whilst ignoring emotion idiotic and suppressing it tiresome. As such, emotion should be channeled, not ignored or obeyed. 12. On national anniversaries of loss or celebration, people are at their most vulnerable. It is at times of heightened cultural emotivity that reflection takes root in the mediocre, and filled with regret, the populace is at their most manipulable. 13. Self-deprecation builds trust. When people see even minor imperfections, they're endeared by the transparency. 14. People are susceptible to negativity bias. If something is negative, it is more likely to be believed without rigorous investigation. Acts of virtue come with a burden of proof. Acts of unvirtue do not. 15. Appear easily provoked, then ignore those who see it as an opportunity to attack. This is good for enticing the lurking foe to reveal himself. Present an illusion of disordered vulnerability, seduce an attack, and by the time your foe realizes the ruse, it is too late. He has revealed himself. 16. An effective strategist knows when to utilize counterintuitive gambits to get a better view of the battlefield. For example, if you are strong in one area, make your enemy think you are weak. If you are weak in an area, make your enemy think you are strong. If you confuse the enemy's data points, he cannot successfully analyze you. If he cannot analyze you, he cannot defeat you. 17. Be wary of the plausible deniability of jokes. It's just a joke is the most common phrase used to disguise a transgression. All good jokes contain truth. As such, if one crosses your boundaries under the guise of humor, they are still trespassing. Humor, but smoke and mirrors for such trespass. 18. He who acts boldly under the cloak of sadistic humor is not to be trusted, for humor is the jester's shield and sword. 19. People who get caught doing something they shouldn't do not reveal the complete truth at once. They opt to reveal the least self-incriminating aspects first. 20. The objective of trickle truth is damage control, to minimize the damage done to one's reputation when a loss of reputation is all but unavoidable. 21. As lies compound, trust erodes, and the more difficult it becomes to lie. The more it is perceived that you lie, the better you must be at lying to successfully do so. As such, compulsive lying is tactically unsound. Lie only when necessary. 22. Trust can be earned and spent, but if you spend too much too quickly, your account with the betrayed individual is permanently closed. No matter what you do, you will always be spent. 23. People love to be seduced, but they do not like to know how. 
Honesty doesn't pay when transparency compromises the beauty of the illusion that sustains you. Like any magic trick, people enjoy the perception of mystery, not what creates it. 24. Apply seduction to romance or sales. Never reveal your tricks. Give your pitch, not your essence. 25. Effortlessness and dismissiveness foster an appearance of strength. 26. If people feel judged by you, they hate you. In diplomacy, suggest via statement. Do not undermine with command or overt dispute. 27. Honesty is ugly. Most people want their opinions validated, not disproved. It is but a minority of intellectuals who enjoy being disproved. 28. Manufacture a threat, and you can sell its solution. 29. Control both sides and simulate a conflict. Monitor organic responses for potential allies and enemies. 30. Utilize counterintuitive strategies. It pays to create a group to undermine your interests. By creating a group to threaten your interests, you prevent a concealed threat from mobilizing. Those interested in undermining your interests will join your artificial opposition rather than form their own. 31. The truly best deceivers begin with themselves, and therefore tend to be more emotional than rational in disposition. 32. Environments come with varying expectations and codes of behavior. Environments define expectation unless you are bigger than your environment. 33. It is better to define what will be expected of you than allow others to define their expectations. If you do not define what people expect of you, they will define it for you. 34. He who defines his role has more freedom for people become their roles. 35. Your benefactors should overestimate you, and your enemies should underestimate you. 36. The lower the average intellect of a man's company, the more he must show aggression to be respected. A more intelligent company demands the inverse. 37. As a Machiavellian, it is always pertinent to ascertain the intellect of one's company and then adjust one's demeanor as relevant. A person who cannot dial up their personality up or down is unfit to wield power. 38. Intelligent narcissists require consistent displays of histrionic aggression in order to respect somebody. 39. Acting is necessary. Just as one key cannot open every lock to every door, a single disposition cannot lock every favor from every person. As such, adaptability. 40. People are like safes with combinations. By correctly calibrating your traits to align with their values, you unlock their trust, desire, and respect. Incorrect calibrations create apathy and disdain. 41. Disagreement is acceptable, for it can teach, but sabotage is never. A leader's task is to discern the prior from the latter. When in doubt, assume sabotage. 42. It is important to work smarter than harder, but better to be seen as dumb and hardworking. Few like a rich man who earns more in a less arduous condition, for jealousy of his privileged position is rife. A smart man earns more than a hardworking man, yet a smart, hardworking man who appears average out-earns both. 43. It's easy not to outshine the brilliant, but it's difficult not to outshine the incompetent. 
Regardless, know your place and behave accordingly. 44. Ignore powerless idiots. Ridicule powerful ones. Powerless idiocy is an annoyance. Powerful idiocy is a problem. Relevance and status shall determine classification. 45. The man can find a reason will be humiliated by psychic warfare, whilst the man can find a cunning will have his sophistry undressed. Logic and cunning are the most powerful psychological tools. Therefore, you would do well to cultivate them both. To cultivate neither is to be weak, and to cultivate one is to be average. But to cultivate both, this is to be dangerous. 46. Logicians look for reasons. Machiavellians look for loopholes. 47. Incentive is the most persuasive use of soft power. With fear, it's hard power counterpart. Those who can't be bribed can be threatened, whilst those who can't be threatened can be bribed. Very few are immune to both. 48. Be egotistical only when necessary. 49. You bond with people over the things they hold dear. Pets, media franchises, hobbies. This is how you gain trust. In matters of trust, one should appeal to emotion, never to reason. Give plenty of reasons you should be trusted. Give nonsense reasons for why you shouldn't. 50. In social matters, people do not reward he who is most logical, but rather he who is most impressive. 51. Cunning and rhetoric almost always triumph over logic, fact, and statistics in matters of persuasion. 52. Despair in the moment is tantamount to forfeiture. 53. Most are foolish. Instead of befriending power, they hate on it. These people aren't cut out for the game, for one does not acquire power by hating the powerful. 54. A champion must always defend his crown, for as much as he is admired, there is always a man who lusts to take the powerful's wealth and status for himself. 55. The least patriotic leader is one who so utterly dominates his kingdom that he does not allow it to flourish out of the insecurity that permitting so would remove him from power. 56. All abusable systems are abused, and so it is folly to expect any system not to be abused. Systems should be designed on the assumption they will be abused and where less than infallible, retroactively amended to do so. 57. Absolute dignity is rare. Most pride is no more than resistance that can be removed for a price. The weaker the ego, the lower the price. For the right price, fantasies of all persuasions find manifestation. In matters of effective sophistry, one must calibrate language to the discerned intelligence of their listener. 59. Disdain precarious alliances. It is better to have no alliance than a precarious one, for weak alliances foreshadow betrayal. 60. Taste isn't just a matter of food or scent, but likewise of personality. One man's annoyance is another man's joy. Delicate tastes require finesse. And yet if a taste is too demanding, specific, or exacting, one may wish to wholly reject the fetishist notion and cease all association. 61. Don't become the slave of another man's tastes. Exercise prerogative with association. If you know the taste, you can leverage its fantasy. But if the taste is concealed and used as a benchmark for invalidating you, leave. 62. People decide quickly who they do and do not like. 
When factions form, anybody not on your side should be assumed to collaborate with the enemy. As for those who do join your cause, analyze their motives. 63. Whilst punishment should be swift, reward should be gradual. 64. It is far more profitable to see things from your point of view than from the opposition's. The more you acknowledge the opposition's point of view, the more power you give it. Therefore, for your point of view to dominate, you must dismiss your enemies. 65. Displays of agility typically indicate one of two things. You're being mesmerized by a diversion, or you're witnessing mastery. 66. Don't play cards you don't need to play. Holding all the cards does not make you indestructible. You may still lose if you play your cards poorly. Execution is everything. A poorly played card is worse than one not played. 67. Tailor your approach to the personality you're dealing with. 68. Nothing is more compelling than fantasy. Do not underestimate its power to convince or exploit. Machiavellian Maxims, Part 3 One who deceives will always find those who will allow themselves to be deceived. Niccolo Machiavelli Number 1. Introduction Welcome to Part 3 in my series of Machiavellian Maxims. You know the drill by now. Contained within is a pithy collection of Machiavellian wisdom. Number 2. The Maxims Number 1. In matters of persuasion, one should appeal to emotion, not reason. Where this fails, use sophistry. 2. Logical fallacies double as effective Machiavellian power plays, for logic is antithetical to cunning. 3. Anticipate your opponent's moves, preempting where possible and implementing contingencies where not. 4. An intellectual, more than anybody, must become Machiavellian, for it is this and this alone that will save them from predacious egos. 5. Delivery is more persuasive than substance. Optimize appearance and strike when the time is right, for masterful delivery can make even the mundane into magic. 6. In matters of defection, it is more effective to offer revenge than money. 7. It is foolish to sentimentally gauge the chance of betrayal, but rather, one should assess the incentive and capacity for doing so. Offer disincentives to maximize loyalty. 8. Your most intimate enemies will admire you, copy you, and take all your advice, only to use it for an agenda that undermines yours. 9. Each personality is a puzzle in which favor can be unlocked by demonstrating the traits desired by the personality. Learn a personality and complement it to influence it. 10. Apologies are often effectual, for they stir up resentment and exacerbate matters by highlighting wrongdoing. A leader should not show regret. He should ignore, deny acknowledgement, or spin a negative into a positive. To regret is to show weakness and invite belittlement. 11. Appear unappealing to those who don't appeal to you, for it is better to be undesired than to be desired by the undesirable. 12. To permit insolence from one is to court it from all. Crush the insolent or deprive them a platform, lest you earn a reputation for timidity. 13. 
the most terrible action can be bred from the best of intention. Be mindful of bad advice from the well-intended. They may mean well, but unintentional or not, their misinformation will destroy you. 14. The power players have learned to harness the zealous delusions of their pawns to dress unvirtuous agendas in the clothing of nobility. 15. Anybody who can conceive of evil can enact it. 16. Conceal your intentions whilst ascertaining the competitions. He who has the most correct data wins. Always be mindful of misinformation. 17. Most believe one should never be ruthless because it's evil, or that one should always be ruthless because otherwise you're weak. Both are wrong. 18. Provocation is an invitation to act in a way that reduces one's power. As such, ignoring is a skill any would-be Machiavellian would do well to master. 19. Mastery of interpersonal psychology is micro-Machiavellianism. Mastery of military strategy is macro-Machiavellianism, and business strategy is both. 20. Transactional analysis. Every time somebody asks you a question, they want you to give them value, or they're looking to sabotage you. Be mindful of the blur between curiosity and inquisition. 21. Strive for success, but be cautious of it. For one who knows not how to handle it will be robbed of the qualities that made them great. Rampant success introduces an overconfidence that diminishes reason and a complacency that destroys drive. Do not be a victim of your success. 22. The histrionic weaponizes their storytelling talent on the slightest whim. For blackmail is how they obtain, and chaos is how they indulge. Be wary, the histrionic. For they take root and disrupt venomously, like a toxin. 23. Should you see the trifecta of confrontation, dismissiveness, and attention-seeking, you have yourself a histrionic. Tread on their eggshells and succumb to aggressive sensitivity. Or reject them by refusing to deign acknowledgement. 24. Absence increases respect only when the absence is legitimate. If you ignore somebody, but are observed by the ignored engaging others, you are not absent, and so elicit disrespect rather than respect. True absence is in disappearance, not observable silence. 25. It's subtler to deprive than to inflict. Inflict to make a statement. Deprive to attack with the stealth of plausible deniability. 26. If you don't know how to play the game, people do not respect you. If you play the game, people think you're untrustworthy. If one must choose, it is always better to be distrusted than disrespected. 27. The unfocused and the stupid are easily made the puppets and pawns of those who manufacture controversy for nothing but their own advantage. 28. When dealing with a troublesome woman, a man must realize the presumption of innocence works in her favor. Reframe her presumed innocence, keep the focus on her, and make veiled threats with pleasant language. 29. Neither cuteness nor beauty translates into virtue, but the charm of such things leads the idiot to believe it does. 30. 
not addressing the concerns of lieutenants is one of the gravest mistakes a general can make. Dismissal will cost morale, loyalty, and cohesion. 31. The paranoid assume predation, and so in their lack of finesse, make their distrust obvious, eliciting naught but disdain. 32. If you want power, you have to become highly resistant to provocation. The weak will always try to provoke you to siphon your credibility. 33. Do not reward insolence. It is far more efficient to silently dismiss than loudly dispute. Shows of force are only necessary should one wish to set an example. 34. Never reward passive aggressiveness, for it is merely a precursor to insolence. 35. The fewer words you need to explain, the likelier you are believed. This is why honest justification is intuited as dishonest. It doth protest too much. 36. It is pointless to explain why you're rejecting somebody, because they will disdain the rejection more than they appreciate the reasoning behind your decision. 37. The rejected will use your reason for denying them as ammunition for a smear campaign. It is wiser to deprive them data than fuel their fire. Concealment trumps transparency in matters of rejection. 38. You may be tempted to gloat about why you're rejecting a person, but as a matter of class and concealment, know when to stop. 39. Cost-benefit-hassle-to-reward ratio. Where hassle exceeds reward, association or investment is unprofitable. 40. Be very suspicious of neutral people, but be as neutral as feasible yourself. Polarize only when necessary. 41. As a scientist tests his hypotheses, a Machiavellian should test his strategies. 42. Utilize ambiguity as bait to ascertain interest. 43. You should be civil to strangers, but it should not be easy to become your friend. Only lower the drawbridge for the worthy. A man who welcomes everybody into his kingdom will soon enough have no kingdom to speak of. What is true of countries is likewise of men. Pick your friends carefully. 44. The most common way people inadvertently reveal their hand is through projection. 45. People's assumptions normally stem from the opinions they hold of themselves. The more emotional the individual, the more likely they are projecting. 46. The more people want to believe, the easier it is to sell. The less people want to believe, the easier it is to hide. 47. Use finesse when asking questions, lest you grant the impression you're interrogating and arouse suspicions. 48. Do not quibble over small sums or tiny favors. For the pettier you are, the smaller you seem. 49. Misdirection is superior to omission in matters of concealment. 50. The quickest way to make an ally is to pay up. And the quickest way to make an enemy? Not paying up. 51. In matters of negotiation, once you identify the insecurities of the other party, you have the power. If they are timid, identify their insecurities and spontaneously demonstrate qualities that assuage their fears. If they are ruthless, leverage their insecurities to degrade their ability to negotiate for more favorable terms. 52. 
Find out what a person wants, and you're a step closer to knowing what they need. From here, discern what they fear losing, and what they want but can't get. Wherever there is dependence, there is fear, and wherever there is fear, there is leverage. Find the fear and acquire leverage. 53. Regardless of who you deal with, be he virtuous or unvirtuous, it always pays to know a man's fears. 54. Whoever is willing to go further will invariably win. For he who denies a winning strategy on moral grounds forfeits victory. 55. Every powerful man needs a fall man, a man to commit dirty deeds on his behalf. For it is in this way he will evade the deposition that follows from hate. Machiavellian Maxims, Part 4 The promise given was a necessity of the past. The word broken is a necessity of the present. Niccolo Machiavelli Number 1. Introduction Welcome to Part 4 in my series of Machiavellian Maxims. As with the previous articles, contained within is a pithy collection of Machiavellian wisdom. Number 2. The Maxims Number 1. Social causes are disguises for the predators and lifestyles for the sheep. 2. Her first concern is her appearance. Her second concern, her cunning. Both serve the same ends. 3. Your response should be proportional to the perception of the threat. There's no need to launch nukes when you can get the job done with a well-aimed bullet. 4. A leader must be mindful in exercising benevolence for too much benevolence is perceived as weakness and fosters resentment. 5. One is wise to openly support freedom of speech, but they should only do so for as long as such speech is not deleterious to their reputation. It is almost always an act of self-folly to not censor those biting deep into their repute. 6. Be mindful of the Streisand effect. If your detractors are persistent and resourceful, Censoring will make things worse rather than better. 7. People are bolder when they're paying, and meeker when they're paid. Caveat, the latter doesn't apply to blackmail. 8. People want to forget, not be reminded. Very powerful, never forget this. 9. Tuquoque is the sophist's most preferred logical fallacy, for it can justify their poor behavior while simultaneously redirecting attention to the misdeeds of others. 10. Weak and strong in matters of strategy are not effects of appearance in so much as they are a question of the tactical viability and efficacy of a plan. 11. In financial exchange, the man paid covets payment in advance, whilst the man paying seeks to pay after the fact. 12. When people retroactively change their minds, they will blame you for their change of heart, irrespective of whether it's truly your fault. 13. Coincidence is the term people use to describe a chess move they don't understand. 14. To see how ruthless life truly is, all one need do is observe the vast difference in means between people. 15. Survival of the fittest. There is no greater truism. Winners and losers, everyone takes what they can get. Nothing is owed. Everything is game. 16. Let the other man lose his cool. 
but be sure to keep yours, for it is the man with the most self-control that leaves victorious. 17. The nicer the man, the more he suffers. For the world does not respect carte blanche kindness. Forget kindness. Show only magnanimity, a selective kindness backed by thoughtfulness and strength. 18. The beauty of a question is it's in your power to decide whether you're going to answer it or not. 19. Sell a person on a thing by making them think you're not selling anything. The moment they think you're trying to sell them, they'll behave as if they hold all the power. 20. This is as true of physical action as it is of agenda pushing. That which happens suddenly is noticed and reacted to, whilst that which happens gradually is not. In stealth, promote gradualness. Move too quickly and you will be discovered. 21. A woman being cute is the metaphorical equivalent of a wolf adorning himself in the attire of a woolly sheep. It's purposefully disarming. Recognize cuteness for the sham that it is. Beauty is not virtue. Cuteness implies innocence, something you can be most emphatically assured she is not. 22. The problem with trust is everybody needs it. Most are too scared to give it, and the most dangerous of humans are incapable of it. 23. Know when people are trying to earn your trust in order to exploit it. There's a greater likelihood you will be targeted in this fashion if you're rich or have notable power within an organization. Corollary. The higher the stakes, the longer the plays. 24. Honesty is powerful. Transparency is foolish. The difference between honesty and transparency is scale. 25. Honesty is a micro-snapshot of truth, whereas transparency is the macro-totality of it. Selective honesty as opposed to full disclosure. People like honesty. They rarely want full disclosure. 26. If you need to keep absolving someone because they consistently maintain plausible deniability, you are being played. Punish them or cease association. Do not continue to absolve. 27. It is generally wise to allow people to project onto you the social or political views they find most appealing. 28. People love power and want to be as close to it as possible without endangering themselves. Skin in the game separates the wheat from the chaff. 29. Incompetence can serve as an effective cloak of secrecy with which to hide an agenda. For example, if one were to build a house under a house, but wanted nobody to know the second house existed, they'd attribute the additional building time and costs incurred by the creation of the hidden house to the labor and bureaucratic incompetencies of the known house. 30. Everything people do is strategic, irrespective of its effectiveness or deliberateness. There's always an angle but it isn't always insidious. 31. Polarization is the precursor to division, and division is a common prerequisite for control. 32. Be bolder than your enemy, and you paralyze him upon the very nanosecond you confront him. 33. Simulate your downfall to see who folds and sells you out. Loyalty is gauged in the face of failure, not success. 34. Unless you're exchanging blows, move slower than your enemy. The confidence throws them off immensely. 
35. If they're going to disbelieve you, mirror your accuser. And then by act of disbelieving you, they disbelieve both of you. 36. He who is most cunning, and furthermore, best equipped to execute the mechanizations of his cunning, will win a hundred wars and a thousand battles. 37. Magnanimity is a projection of soft power. Always leave a tip. It makes you look powerful and buys you favor with those who perform your services. 38. Boldness almost always rewards. When it doesn't, disappear. 39. When you don't have a good answer, ask a question. Be sparing with this, however, for abusing it will make you seem disgustingly untrustworthy. 40. When the enemy is too powerful, it's more profitable to ally with them than war with them, irrespective of your feelings for them. 41. Treat all unfinalized offers as bait. 42. If one strategizes purely from a position of emotionally driven personal preference and not pragmatism, one will strategize inadequately. 43. You can't trust a dark triad who isn't dependent on you for a thing. And even then, the ruthless temporariness of their loyalty is predicated entirely on the degree to which you are useful. 44. Breaking silence is tactically unsound. Wait for the other person to speak first, or do not speak at all. 45. Know your enemies and know yourself. But in knowing your enemies, know your allies, ascertain who is loyal, and ascertain who is mercenary. 46. If you don't want war, but the enemy does, you've lost before the battle's even begun. 47. Diplomat is a geopolitical euphemism for intercontinental Machiavellian negotiator. 48. The disparity between what a man says and what a man does are the reputational affecting aspects he takes into consideration when speaking. 49. Bide your time after being attacked. Don't respond straight away. Let them think they've won. Then as soon as they relax, strike. 50. Whoever makes the first move without being baited holds the advantage. They control the battlefield because the element of surprise shocks and demoralizes the enemy, striking a critical blow before they can even fortify themselves. 51. The difference between a man who can suspend empathy and a man who has none is the latter is existentially incapable of virtue. 52. Foreign aid is macro-level statecraft philanthropy. Step 1. Buy favor. Step 2. Get a good reputation for your generosity and market it as enlightened altruism. 53. Predators can destroy other predators, but the difficulty of such a thing persuades them to designate targets who will offer less resistance. Be expensive to defeat, and few will even dare to declare war. 54. What is left when honor is lost? Strategy. The only way to lose it is to lose your life. Strategy is the essence of life via adaptivity. 55. People only care about what you have, not what it took to get. As such, if someone's interested in the how, there's a 99% chance they want to copy your blueprint or sabotage your achievements. 56. 
If you're afraid to play in the mud, the mud will involuntarily dirty you. Machiavellian Maxims, Part 5 There is no avoiding war. It can only be postponed to the advantage of others. Niccolo Machiavelli Number 1. Introduction Welcome to Part 5 in my series of Machiavellian Maxims. As with the previous entries, contained within a pithy collection of Machiavellian wisdom. Number 2. The Maxims Number 1. Cull the fickle, insolent, and disloyal. For even if it injures you in the short term, it will benefit you in the long. 2. Being likable is a conflict avoidance strategy. 3. When dealing with pedants, jobsworths, and faultfinders, use subjunctives such as if, perhaps, and maybe, so they can't nail you down to a position. Anything that can be misconstrued will be. Plausible deniability is thus paramount. 4. Trust is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The less you trust the other party, the less they'll trust you. The inverse is also true. The more you trust the other party, the likelier they'll trust you. 5. When people don't like you, they look for flaws in your methods in an attempt to discredit you. Give them something non-life-threatening to chew on. 6. Faced by a lion, most will step back, not forward. 7. Egotists will underestimate you. Cowards will overestimate you. 8. Projection. Most people posit the opinion they hold of themselves as a notable exception for generality in counterargument. 9. When you describe a man to himself in accurate yet unflattering detail, you deal a crippling blow to his psyche. 10. The waiting game is a necessary game. As such, it is strategically optimal to outweigh those who would test your patience. 11. If power is defined as one's ability to impose their will onto the world, then money is the commodification of power in physical form. 12. The more words you use, the less they'll like what you say. 13. Misdirection. If they say a lot of words without communicating a bottom line, they're deceiving you. 14. War is everything. All the time everywhere, war rages constantly. It has different forms, intensities, and appearances, but it persists perpetually, eternally. 15. Competition is not war, per se, but rather, it's predicate. One can compete indirectly and without maliciousness of intent. War, on the other hand, is willful violation, for it is less distant, more immediate, and manifests itself as conflict or sabotage. 16. Frames are a war of propaganda. Do not absorb the other side's frame. Have them absorb yours. Whoever absorbs first loses. If neither side concedes, stalemate. Caveat satire. 17. Intelligent energy allocation is a fundamental principle of effective strategy. For bereft energy, there is nothing. 18. Pragmatism is king, doubly so when one is suffering. 19. Strong ethics are oft the superficial perfume of the elite and the substantive limiter of the loser.
20. The middle class are confined to methodologically unsound moral codes, for it ensures they're neither a threat nor a factor in the game of power. 21. The poorest and the richest tend to be the least moral, for the poor have dire need, whereas the rich possess excess power. Desperation and domination alike lend themselves to immorality. 22. The immoral rich are unvirtuous on a greater scale than the immoral poor, for they have greater means with which to impose their ethics. The immoral poor, in turn, justify their immorality based on the actions of the immoral rich, people they'd likely mimic, given the same resources. 23. For the rich, it's easy to be moral because they can afford to be. For the poor, it's easy to be moral because there's little power to tempt them. 24. The method necessary to win and its associated reputation are entirely distinct entities. Method is effectiveness. Reputation is perception. 25. If you want to sell someone, lie to them. If you want to help them, hit them with the truth. A spoonful of humor helps the medicine go down. 26. Most are focused on how being bound to their word can limit their freedoms by putting them in a bind. The reversal, however, is that by speaking truthfully and keeping your word when no one else does, your credibility grows immeasurably. Irrespective of their aesthetic contradictions, both are simultaneously true. These are not mutually exclusive conditions. 27. If you discover someone's given you misinformation, ascertain the probability this was done so with ill intent. There's a good chance you're at war. 28. To be successful is, effectively, to paint a bullseye on one's back. To be famous is to intensify the geometric volume of said bullseye. 29. Many notable people have acquired demons and skeletons in their pursuit to the top. Enemies instinctively expect this. Hence the propensity to dirt dig and smear the noteworthy. 30. People judge themselves less harshly than they judge you. To them, what is not permissible for you is so for them. 31. Everyone judges you on your actions, but not everyone understands why you did what you did. Fewer care why. 32. Bread, circuses, and a pseudo-educated population Ferment an apathy that makes for easy governance. 33. Someone is always responsible for failure, but the person truly at fault is not always disposable. This is why the fall man was invented. He who is unuseful will be allocated the blame for the mistakes of he who is. 34. When people analyze literature and interpret, they believe their deductions to be uniquely theirs, rather than seeds planted by the writer. 35. Don't avoid war. Prepare for it. 36. Inferiors think you're equal when you validate their nonsense with a response. Corollary. The higher you ascend, the more proficient one need be at ignoring trite. 37. When confused, the inverse of the overt statement's appearance is often where you'll find truth. 38. When we see what we want to see instead of what is, we fool ourselves. All the other person needs to do is study our desires and present themselves as such. They show us what we want to see, 
and we are all too happy to ignore anything extraneous. For this reason, it is clear, the person best suited to deceive you is you. 39. To expose subversive elements, appear reactive. Then, don't react when a shot is fired, in the grand confidence you will respond. Upstart morale shatterer. 40. Arguments are more about spin than they are material facts. It is not the best logician that wins, it's the best spin artist. 41. Be mindful about revealing how you would intend to react in threatening hypothetical scenarios. For if such a reaction is deemed profitable, you will inadvertently bring about its undesirable cause. 42. The resentful weak will clutch at any avenue for revenge, no matter how trivial, and leverage it to its absolute utmost. 43. Politics is war by psychological means, media but its delivery system. 44. Typical enemies are visible. They promote you by being vocal in their hatred of you. Insidious enemies invisibly undermine you by recruiting someone to smear you, or by endorsing your visible enemies. The insidious enemy does not mark it for you. Sometimes he even poses as a friend. Be mindful of him, for he is the Trojan horse. 45. You detect Trojans based on what they don't do, rather than what they do. Even when hidden, enemies are usually close. Apply a probability heuristic to your surroundings to identify potential Trojans. 46. He who is seen is only more powerful than he who isn't, when being seen yields profit and being not doesn't. 47. Sow seeds of doubt invisibly to create division among others, whilst appearing warm to all involved. This will allow you to consolidate power in the popularity Olympics that constitute human relations. 48. Business or war, targeting works the same. You target people with influence over others, not influencees. Destroy a leader, destroy his men. Win a leader, win them. 49. Everything is a tactic or a play or a move. If you can't see this, it's because you're undiscerning not because it isn't there. 50. Use the word feel more when talking with feelers. Use the word think more when talking with thinkers. This sounds simple when stated, but few realize just how much it affects their credibility. 51. Winners don't play fair. They hide their edge and maintain the illusion of fairness. 52. The more powerful a person becomes, the more likely they are to distance themselves from previous allies. 53. Be unpredictable. Appear weak when strong, or strong when weak. Alternatively, oscillate between the two to be an unpredictable enigma. Fifty Shades of Red Knowledge is indivisible. When people grow wise in one direction, they are sure to make it easier for themselves to grow wise in other directions as well. On the other hand, when they split up knowledge, concentrate on their own field, and scorn and ignore other fields, they grow less wise, even in their own field. Isaac Asimov Number 1. Introduction The maxims that comprise the bulk of this article are designed to educate men on the nature of women, as well as the nature of themselves in relation to women. 
Being a loose collection of maxims, the article is easy to read by merit of its broken-down format. I've likewise adopted brevity here in the hope that the most prominent points will stick more easily. The maxims listed are inclusive, but not exhaustive. As such, these maxims do not compromise the totality of wisdom available on this topic. There is far more. With time, I may add additional maxims or pen a follow-up article. Number two, the maxims. I am maxim number one. The tougher the men around her, the softer she is. The softer the men around her, the tougher she is. The toughest woman is the fatherless woman, for the fatherless woman seeks a surrogate by whoring herself. I am maxim number two. A woman never wants you to need her, only to want her. The moment your want becomes need, she no longer wants you. I am maxim number three. Women's love is admiration built upon respect. Women are drawn to men of experience and power. Man's love is respect built upon desire. Men are drawn to women of innocence and vulnerability. When a woman no longer admires, and a man no longer sacrifices, love is lost. It is a delicate balance, for respect is lost when either fails in their capacity. Man sacrifices, woman admires. That is love. I am maxim number four. Women love children how men love women. I am maxim number five. The feminine wants a guardian, and the masculine wants to guard. The problem is, neither can happen without trust. The sexes have always found it difficult to trust one another, but, courtesy of feminism, they have never trusted each other less. I am maxim number six. There is an immutable animosity between the sexes that serves as the conduit for all distrust. This animosity flows from the inability of the sexes to reconcile their fundamentally opposed sexual strategies. For a man's optimal sexual strategy to thrive, the woman's must suffer. For a woman's optimal sexual strategy to thrive, the man's must suffer. Each sex is determined not to suffer, and so both inflict suffering on the other in a perverse determination not to suffer themselves. This is the battle of the sexes. This is reproductive war. I am maxim number seven. The sexes desire to trust one another, but they wish to actualize their sexual imperatives far more. As such, Trust is predicated on the degree of one's control far more than is any sense of blind loyalty. I am maxim number eight. Women are followers, not leaders. They follow trends, status, and power, not a sense of innate loyalty. I am maxim number nine. The average man is ignorant and misled. His mental construct of women is far greater than anything the typical woman aspires to. This is not his fault. For his biology deceives him, and society lies to him. As such, the deck of deception is stacked. Nevertheless, the reality remains. I am maxim number 10. You conflate her beauty with good character. These things are distinct, but mesmerized by beauty, you think they are identical. I am maxim number 11. You have been lied to about the nature of women all your life. Disregard what you think you know, because it's probably wrong. Ignore the top-down preaching that society espouses. Reconstruct your understanding from the bottom up. I am maxim number 12. Cultures have always had a preferred sex. In some areas, men are celebrated. 
In others, it is women. There is no equality in prosperous cultures, only a cooperation where one sex recognizes the superiority of the other. To realize which culture you live in, ask yourself who it is more acceptable to criticize. The sex that it is least acceptable to criticize is that culture's preferred sex. I am Maxim number 13. Women aren't loyal to you. They're loyal to your power. I am Maxim number 14. Conventional loyalty implies honor. Honor is a male abstraction. Female loyalty is predicated entirely on the belief you are powerful. We call this opportunistic loyalty. Men can be loyal in the female sense, opportunistically, or he can be loyal in the truest sense of the word, sacrificially. In matters of men, women are capable only of the prior. The latter is reserved for her children. I am maxim number 15. Sacrificial loyalty is not predicated on the potency of one's power. Opportunistic loyalty is fixated on it. I am maxim number 16. Female loyalty is not loyalty in the truest sense of the word, for it is far too conditional to be considered such a thing. The conventional understanding of loyalty demands a bond beyond an enamor with power. I am maxim number 17. Opportunistic loyalty is an instrument of pragmatism. Sacrificial loyalty is typically not. Therefore, in contrast to sacrificial loyalty, opportunistic loyalty is something akin to half-loyalty. I am maxim number 18. It is precisely how women love which vitiates their capacity for loyalty to that of bastardized half-loyalty, a loyalty dictated by hypergamy rather than honor. A Machiavellian self-serving loyalty? Yes. A noble one? Most definitely not. This is reality. Accept it. I am maxim number 19. All past sacrifice is null and void if your continued association does not provide her with a tangible benefit. To simplify, if you cannot help her now, she does not care if you helped her before. See Brifolt's Law. Refer to maxims number 16 through 18. I am maxim number 20. Your mother is the only woman who will love you for you rather than your power. Corollary. If your mother was a heartless narcissist, you have never known and shall never know a woman's least conditional love. I am maxim number 21. If you compare a potential love interest to your mother, your love interest will disappoint you. Corollary. Unless your mother was a narcissist, in which case you will get exactly what you expect. I am maxim number 22. Women don't care about your struggles, only your successes. I am maxim number 23. Women want the final product, but successful men value a woman who was there for the journey. Women detest risk, so they have the propensity to hold back ambitious men with their petulant insecurities. Should he become too powerful, she fears she will lose her monopoly over him. She sabotages him to secure him, for the crab bucket mentality is intrinsic to women. Refer to maxim number 22. I am maxim number 24. As her control increases, her attraction and respect decreases. As her control decreases, her attraction and respect increases. If a woman is with a submissive man trying to become dominant, she will utterly oppose him. She has accepted he is submissive, and so she revels in the power her control gives her. If he becomes dominant, 
she loses the power and resources her monopoly granted her. And she will never forget his old ways. She will never really believe he is a worthy leader. I am Maxim number 25. The optimized female sexual strategy compartmentalizes the roles of men. We call this female sexual plurality. Women have a dual nature to control and be controlled, for their fluidity permits great perversity. With the dominant, she can satiate her masochism. With the submissive, she can satiate her sadism. In this way, she indulges her lust for power with the submissive man, and her lust to feel feminine with the dominant. I am maxim number 26. If she is with a submissive man, she prioritizes her happiness. If she is with a dominant man, she prioritizes his. With the dominant man, making him happy makes her happy. The submissive man's happiness has no such effect, so she deems it irrelevant. I am maxim number 27. Women will not go backwards in commitment. Men will not go backwards sexually. Corollary. Unless the man or woman in question has no better options, in which case they will, with misery. I am maxim number 28. Women bargain for control of a man's commitment. Men bargain for control of a woman's body. I am maxim number 29. Work on the presumption that the women you date are promiscuous. Your inclination will be to assume her innocence, but you are wiser to assume her guilt. I am maxim number 30. It is not so much a question of if she is a whore, but rather a question of if she is not. Refer to maxim number 29. I am maxim number 31. Prudence necessitates one requires evidence of womanly innocence rather than assuming the existence of such. The assumption that innocence is an intrinsic feminine quality is an almost universal tragedy that has cost many men a great deal. I am maxim number 32. A woman's truth is whatever she needs it to be. If the abstract truth does not serve her psyche, a dissociative one will be manufactured in its place. I am maxim number 33. Feminism didn't make women something that they weren't. Patriarchy and religion did. Man's governance made women better, not just for the sake of men, but likewise for themselves. Feminism is female self-governance. Such self-governance has revealed the nature of women to lack a non-superficial civility. By removing the societal shaming mechanisms that nurture women to be noble, feminism has exposed the feral nature of women. Everything that is negative about the female disposition is thus doubly so under the fist of feminism. I am maxim number 34. Men must become powerful to be loved. Women and children need only exist. I am maxim number 35. Men remember being boys. Men has a lucid perspective in comparing the diminished affection of his adulthood to the greater bounty of his childhood. Women do not experience such a significant loss of affection. As such, man is forced to realize he will never again be loved so profusely. For the boy gets his fill, but man loves the most to be loved the least. The profundity of maternal love is longed for but forever gone. A girlfriend cannot provide that, and is loath to do so should a weak man demand it. This is perhaps the bitterest of all the pills. I am maxim number 36. Marriage is for women and the lined pockets of divorce lawyers, not husbands. I am maxim number 37. 
Marriage is security for women at the expense of man's freedom. Traditionally, man was given certain powers to compensate him for the increased burden and loss of freedom. He no longer is. I am maxim number 38. Marriage is the only legal contract in existence that permits a person to violate contractual terms and then subsequently penalize the party who upheld said terms. I am maxim number 39. Women, much unlike men, do not see marriage as a legal contract or responsibility. She sees it as security and the celebration itself, the actualization of a childhood fantasy. I am maxim number 40. Some believe marriage is necessary to properly raise children. In a bygone era, it was. Times have changed. Feminist legal politics have transmuted what was traditionally an asset into a liability. I am maxim number 41. Divorce destroys children. You can't ruin your kids with divorce if you never get married to begin with. I am maxim number 42. Women want to get married because, in the majority of circumstances, they have everything to gain and nothing to lose. For you, this is the opposite. Ultra-high net worth women are perhaps the exception. That should reveal all it needs to. I am maxim number 43. Security and commitment is the female endgame. Marriage provides this. Marriage fulfills the feminine imperative by providing a woman her highest desire. The equivalent endgame for the male imperative is a harem of beautiful women. I am maxim number 44. If you're ever in an elite social class that necessitates political marriage, keep the bulk of your assets secure in a trust fund. This is your security. What isn't technically yours cannot be taken from you. I am maxim number 45. Women are Machiavellian as water is wet. I am maxim number 46. Women weaponize sex, for it is their trump card, and often their only card. I am maxim number 47. It is inextricably womanlike to control the attractive man with sex. When libido wins, she fucks for pleasure. When a lust for power wins, Sex is rationed like a drug and used to condition a man with Pavlovian precision. I am maxim number 48. When a woman manipulates a man she does not find attractive, she does so through feigned frigidity and sex appeal, rather than through sexual act. I am maxim number 49. It is in a woman's interest to give deliberately mixed signals. There is great power and even a potential for sex. As such, it is in woman's interest to have men believe they have a chance. For as long as he believes this, she exercises power over him. I am maxim number 50. If you try to debate with someone whose mind prefers emotion to reason, you will engage in a grand exercise of futility that exhausts the patience. As such, do not argue with women. It is pointless. You cannot argue with feelings. You can only manipulate them. Number three, in closing. Some things may seem obvious, others not so. The seeming obviousness of something is an incredibly subjective phenomena and is based primarily on your experience, or lack thereof. As such, some things may click, others may not. I only ask that if something is not immediately obvious, that you reread the maxim a couple of times to better consider its meaning. If you still don't understand a point, feel free to ask in the comments. Fifty Shades Redder The saddest aspect of life right now 
is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. Isaac Asimov. Number one, introduction. Much was covered in the article preceding this, Fifty Shades of Red. However, I remember thinking when writing the piece that there was much more to say. In light of that, as well as the resoundingly positive response the previous article received, I thought it only apt to pen a follow-up. Number two, the maxims. I am maxim number 51. Women are mercenary. They do whatever it takes to win. They will switch sides or outright lie to secure the man they deem their best option. That's what you are to a woman, an option. Refer to maxim number 45. I am maxim number 52. Society claims a woman shown your deepest fears will appreciate your true essence. This is a myth, a grandiose lie. The average man naively expects a woman to treasure his vulnerability in much the way he does hers. She cannot. Presented with such a burden, a woman will plan her exit. Your vulnerability will not be tolerated. Such a man's error is conflating his innate attraction to female vulnerability with a reciprocal attitude. There is no reciprocal attraction. Pre-sexual revolution, men knew this acutely. I am maxim number 53. Superficial vulnerability from a position of power is attractive to women. This is what it means to open up. Substantive vulnerability, e.g. being insecure, is not. Refer to maxim number 52. I am maxim number 54. You think sharing your weakness demonstrates trust and love. You believe you can bond over your pain. You believe wrongly. All she sees is the repulsiveness of your weakness. She does not respect your weakness, your pain, or how difficult it was for you to share your pain with her. Women do not care. They can admire your persistence in the face of such, but not your need to express it. Refer to maxim number 52 and number 53. I am maxim number 55. Money on a man looks like makeup on a woman. Money is makeup for men. I am maxim number 56. Money is more important than women. Chase money, not women. You are more likely to get women chasing money than you are to get money chasing women. Without money or godlike genetics, you're playing on hard mode. Money makes everything better. The quality of woman you can get is the epitome of such, not the exception. Refer to maxim number 55. I am maxim number 57. Men control an interaction by being non-reactive. Women control an interaction by being emotionally intense. I am maxim number 58. Women feed off excess emotion. Men tire from it with the exception of anger indulgence. Woman's emotional nature thus makes her highly histrionic. Corollary. Men with cluster B personality disorders are histrionic and thrive on emotion. In this way, they are similar to women. You will see many similarities between women and dark triad men, particularly narcissists, if you look closely enough. I am maxim number 59. Women thrive on drama. It allows them to weaponize emotion and push an agenda. Starve them of emotion and they have nothing to fight with. A woman starved of emotion will become desperate to sustain her psychological onslaught. As such, she will attempt to pry it from the dead 
exaggerating observations and manufacturing issues in order to sustain the indignance necessary to maintain her psychological assault. Refer to maxim number 57. I am maxim number 60. Women are psychologically violent. Refer to maxims 45, 57, 58, and 59. I am maxim number 61. Effeminate men and masculine women are undesirable. We are programmed to help women and respect men, not the reverse. Women get social power from being pitied. Men get respect, and thus social power, from being powerful. The reverse is not true. I am maxim number 62. Women are the biggest potential threat to your long-term happiness. In the words of Nietzsche, she is the most dangerous plaything. Always be guarded. Many of history's greatest men fought in wars, beat poverty, and built vast commercial empires. What is the one thing that unites the undoing of such glorious men? Women. I am maxim number 63. Always protect the core of your essence. Should you choose to let her in, never let her in completely. See yourself as a castle. Let her into the castle, but do not give her the key to the heaviest door. She will notice the door is closed. She will ask you what's behind the door and if you can let her in. Ignore her protests and manipulations. Never open that door. Not a woman alive other than perhaps your mother is worth opening this door for. If you believe love entails sharing everything, you don't understand love. Refer to maxims 50, 51, and 62. I am maxim number 64. Women lead double lives. She will project a strong, outward, good girl facade whilst engaging in acts of depravity in secret. We know whoring reduces a woman's value. They know this too. But rather than simply not whore, they would prefer to deceive. I am maxim number 65. The more sexual partners she's had, the more mentally damaged she is. Women who have slept with lots of men dehumanize and objectify men through sex. Such women are poor relationship prospects. Aware this damages their value, and in a bid to have men take them seriously, they distort their past by playing down their number. Refer to maxim number 64 and number 67. I am maxim number 66. If you really want to know a woman's notch count, number of partners, feign non-judgment. Indicate you have slept with hundreds of women. From comfort follows truth. I am maxim number 67. The majority of women would rather improve their capacity to deceive than change anything non-superficial about themselves. I am maxim number 68. Women's interest in the field of academic psychology is nothing more than a manifestation of her innate Machiavellian disposition seeking to enhance its efficacy. Refer to maxims 45, 64, and 67. I am maxim number 69. Women hold men to a higher standard of morality than they hold themselves. As such, they are prone to adopting the moral high ground in an attempt to appear clean whilst manipulating another. Never supplicate. Refer to maxim number 64. I am maxim number 70. A woman's mistakes never count. A man's are never forgotten. Refer to maxim number 32 and number 60. I am maxim number 71. A man raised fatherless or to a weak father has a high chance of becoming effeminate. 
a woman raised fatherless or to a weak father has a high chance of becoming masculine. Poorly raised children make for dysfunctional adults. Such individuals can undergo self-improvement and reprogram themselves over a period of time, but such things are rare and far from optimal. If you are a parent, do right by your kids. Men, be manlier, less lenient. Women, you are not more important than your family. You are nothing without them. Betray your children and their father at your peril. I am Maxim number 72. If you're not where you want to be in life, do not have serious relationships with women. Her perception of you will remain rooted in the former version of yourself, and her needs and issues will hinder your progress. Whilst you're trying to build your business and body, she will whine, spread negative energy, and burden you with her problems. Her negativity will infect you, hindering your growth. If you're not where you want to be aspirationally, you have no need for a serious relationship. I am Maxim number 73. Rarely are women an asset. They are a responsibility and thus a liability. Women are a black hole for money, time, and all other valuable resources you possess. This is why your time commitment has value. Do not squander it. Do not let it be appropriated. Be selective in your associations. I am maxim number 74. Women are entitled. Assume all are, because even if some aren't, most are. It's not a question of, is she entitled? but rather a question of, is she not? Scarcely does a woman show appreciation for the labor of man. Is there a problem your woman wants you to fix? It's not a request, it's a demand. In her eyes, it is your obligation rather than your choice to help her. You don't get respect, credit, or appreciation for helping entitled women because their narcissistic natures find them inherently deserving. A woman can be conditioned out of this behavior, but if she isn't, she will default to it. I am maxim number 75. Women scarcely appreciate and commonly expect. Refer to maxim number 74. I am maxim number 76. Women are solipsistic, not abstractive. They do not care about things that do not affect them. If you want a woman to care about something, you have to show her how it affects her on a personal level. Otherwise, she will be disinterested and indifferent. I am maxim number 77. Solipsism means women do not perceive the world as an abstract entity, but merely as a stimulus that they experience. As such, their view of reality does not perceive independent of themselves, but strictly in relation to themselves. I am maxim number 78. Women are highly susceptible to groupthink and herd consensus. Women do not like to stick out. They strive to be seen as normal. This is likewise true to a degree with men. However, with women, the effect is far more pronounced. I am maxim number 79. The majority of women define themselves by their beauty, and so never become anything greater than their bodies. Women without beauty who define themselves by their intellect are often jealous of women who have beauty because they resent having to work harder to achieve similar or lesser social success. I am maxim number 80. If you are not in the top 20% of men, you do not exist. Whenever women talk about how men have it easier, they're referring to the top 20% of men. Women are so privileged, they do not even stop to notice the struggles of the great swath of men beneath them. These men are the invisibles. By merit of hypergamy, they do not exist. 
not even as a blip on her radar. Should such a man become a blip, he is a creep to be shunned, shamed, and shooed. I am maxim number 81. Never enter relationships you can't leave. If you catch yourself forming dependence, it's time to leave. I am maxim number 82. Women are fickle. Do not depend on them. More generally speaking, you should depend on people for specific functions, but segregate such functions. Therefore, if one domino falls, the rest are unaffected. This allows you to be outcome independent and replace people who stop performing a role. Epitomize this attitude in your interactions with women for a noticeable boost in game. I am maxim number 83. Reputation is everything to women. It is more important to her than any moral concern, rule, or abstract principle. Refer to maxim number 45 and number 51. I am maxim number 84. Women detest criticism and judgment in any form. Even when intended constructively, they will misperceive an attack upon their reputation. Women can't handle criticism. They ask for the truth out of ego and self-importance, but they cannot handle it. Hence why people tend to use baby talk with women and sugarcoat things rather than telling it like it is. Refer to maxim number 83. I am maxim number 85. Ignore what she says, watch what she does. Women lie with incredible frequency. Combine this with solipsism devoid of self-awareness, and you do not have someone whose words bear any relation to reality. Corollary. Don't mention the red pill to women. Just practice it. They will hate the ideas, but love the effects. I am maxim number 86. Women are obsessed with claiming they, their, gender has a mastery over qualities that they scarcely possess. E.g. logic, maturity, thoughtfulness, introspective self-awareness, etc. I am maxim number 87. Women are perpetual adolescents. Women mistake confidence and preferences with maturity, but such things are neither. Assertiveness is not maturity. Maturity is measured by the level of responsibility one can assume, as well as the capacity to sufficiently cope with the pressure that said responsibility entails. Women perform poorly on both metrics in comparison to their male counterparts. I am maxim number 88. A woman scarcely matures past 18. She simply becomes pickier and more entitled with age, mistaking self-aggrandizement for enlightenment, although such is the contrary. Likewise, women infinitely obsess over the maturity of individuals, using it as a point of contention to manipulate people. And so it is with profound, deadpan irony that women shit-test men on their maturity, deeming male behavior they disagree with as boy-like. Women mature faster than men, but they do not mature for as long as men. As such, they mature less. Refer to maxim number 87. I am maxim number 89. The feminine is, by its nature, attention-seeking, histrionic, whiny, tearful, prone to delusion, and weak at introspection. Traits we would typically associate with children. It is therefore not unfair to say that women do not mature as much as men, but rather unfair to say that they do. Refer to maxim number 87 and 88. I am maxim number 90. Women play games. Women say they do not play games and hate those that do. This is part of their game. Refer to maxim number 45. I am maxim number 91. A woman's lower brain will eventually trump her higher brain, assuming it does not do so instantly. 
The underlying mechanisms which govern female behavior are universal rather than unique. Furthermore, such mechanisms trump higher reason in matters of female decision-making. This is what we mean by AWALT. People who mistake AWALT as an assertion that the more superficial aspects of women are identical have missed the point. I am maxim number 92. A man's manhood is deduced from the likability of his actions. A woman's womanhood is simply assumed by merit of her age. In a reversal of how women deem male behavior they disapprove of to be boylike, women will distinguish between girls and women to dismiss negative criticism about women. For example, your typical woman would rationalize the wisdom here doesn't describe her because these maxims are true of girls, not women. And naturally, a woman idiotic enough to engage in such a rationalization will always see herself as the woman, never the girl. Refer to maxims number 87 and 88. I am maxim number 93. If a woman is attainable, but you believe she is out of your league, she is. Self-fulfilling prophecy. I am maxim number 94. Depth to men lies in logical complexity and philosophy. Depth to women is the process of interpreting and examining the meaning of her emotions. I am maxim number 95. The more beautiful a woman is, the more men will accept or even enable the most contrived nonsense from her. You would do better not to accept it at all. I am maxim number 96. A man who commits easily and gives attention freely is the male equivalent of a slut to women. He will be used, but by nature of his availability and the ease of which his emotional intimacy is available, never desired. This one-sided dynamic is that which constitutes the fabled friend zone. I am maxim number 97. Women need and crave masculinity in their lives. If you are in a relationship but not sufficiently masculine, your woman will cheat on you. It's not so much a matter of if as it is a matter of when. As such, a relationship success is your primary responsibility, not hers. Refer to maxim number 72. I am maxim number 98. If you're not a man who is comfortably masculine, women will emotionally abuse you until you finally learn to be masculine. Their nature, although unintended, perversely serves in such the manner that tough love does. How she hurts you will give you the impetus necessary to become a better man. It is women who drive men to the red pill. I am maxim number 99. Men are inherently distrustful of women because their logical inconsistency vitiates their credibility. Women are inherently distrustful of men because they fear his physical desire, absent of a willingness to commit. I am maxim number 100. The low-value man can do nothing right. The high-value man can do nothing wrong. The higher your social value, the less the rules apply. 50 More Shades of Red The true man wants two things, danger and play. For that reason, he wants woman, as the most dangerous plaything. Friedrich Nietzsche Number 1. Introduction the maxims that comprise the bulk of this article are designed to educate men on the nature of women, as well as the nature of themselves in relation to women. Being a loose collection of maxims, this article is easy to read by merit of its broken-down format. I've likewise adopted brevity here in the hope that the most prominent points will stick more easily. The maxims listed are inclusive, but not exhaustive. 
As such, these maxims do not compromise the totality of wisdom available on this topic. Number two, the maxims. I am maxim number 101. A woman's charm comes from her happiness, a man's from his confidence. An inconsolable woman's as unattractive as a timid man. I am maxim number 102. Men must earn value. Women must preserve it. It is because of this very reason a woman's age is taboo, whilst a man's is not. The passage of time fares man better than woman. I am maxim number 103. If you're pining for a girl, next her. You've already lost, for it is she who should be pining for you. Be the prize, not the contestant. Prizes never lose. Contestants often do. I am maxim number 104. Women play men like Mozart played piano. Men manipulate nature. Women manipulate men. Civilization is man's project. Man is woman's. I am maxim number 105. Narcissism is a suit well-worn by a man, but one ill-fitting on a woman. Male narcissism is attractive to women, but female narcissism is not to man. Corollary. Men with dark triad mothers are attracted to narcissistic women. I am maxim number 106. A man must be more narcissistic than a woman to attract her. In cultures which worship women, the average woman is more narcissistic than her male counterpart. Where this occurs, great swaths of men are found unattractive. I am maxim number 107. A difference in narcissism, female gratitude and male arrogance, is the great equalizer between the beauty of the feminine form and the lack thereof common to men. When women are equally, if not more, narcissistic than men, such an equalizer vanishes. Being grandiose never hindered a man's chances of getting laid. I am maxim number 108. Give a woman less attention than she wants, and she will desire it. Give her as much of it as she wants, and she will not. Women quickly devalue the attention of a man who would attend to her every whim, so be frugal. It is easy for a man to be too generous, but near impossible for him to be too frugal. I am maxim number 109. In matters of women, entitlement and worthiness is a matter of false equivalence. Her level of entitlement almost always exceeds what she is worth. I am maxim number 110. If she can find a way to blame a man for her decisions, she will. If she can find a way to avoid guilt, she will. Off these two intertwine. For women are allergic to responsibility and loathe to be held accountable. I am maxim number 111. Women have a propensity to distract you from your mission. Do not permit this. I am maxim number 112. The difference between girls and women is not so great as the difference between boys and men. I am maxim number 113. A woman's uppity moral facade is no more than a shaming mechanism designed to manipulate men into deference. Be shameless in your convictions, lest you allow her to co-opt you with guilt. I am maxim number 114. Women cannot negotiate attraction with male weakness, but man is attracted to the vulnerability of the feminine. As such, Sexually, there can be no equality, for the very basis of female attraction necessitates the burden of strength falls squarely on man. I am maxim number 115. Whenever there is a problem between a man and woman, the fault is always assumed to lie with the man and never the woman. And so because of this, 
The onus to fix the problem lies on the man, not the woman. Even when it is obvious that all, if not most, of the blame lies with a woman, polite society will reject all good sense and insist that liability is man's to bear. Would it then be a stretch to presuppose that, even on the most subconscious of levels, people believe it easier to coerce a man than reason with a woman? I am maxim number 116. Women define themselves by their relationships, men by their achievements. Refer to maxim number 104. I am maxim number 117. Female helplessness is an asset prompting charity and sympathy. Male helplessness is a liability prompting disgust and aversion. Women are independent by choice. Men have no choice. I am maxim number 118. Any man who needs a woman is not a man she'd want. Women want to feel wanted, not needed. They can't handle being needed. Needing a woman is tantamount to forfeiting her. Women are repelled by desire that is transformed into need. I am maxim number 119. Women are the needier sex, and hence the deadlier sex. Great need necessitates great duplicity. I am maxim number 120. Logic is the realm of men. Cunning is the realm of women. While strategy is the realm of male ingenuity. I am maxim number 121. A woman's sex appeal is the fulcrum on which she obtains everything, hence the misery of ugly women. It is woman's instinct to leverage man's desire to fulfill her material and emotional needs. Conversely, men merely leverage female desire for their sexual needs. Refer to maxim number 119. I am maxim number 122. Women loathe being sexually objectified by lesser men crafting their disgust for the unworthy into a veneer of moral superiority. Yet hidden within this guise of upright disgust is a depraved desire to be objectified by a powerful man. The weak man gets nothing. The strong man enjoys her perversions. I am maxim number 123. Snagging a high-value man is women's entire purpose for being, although she's never quite sure she got the best deal possible. Refer to maxim number 116. I am maxim number 124. The balcony looks more impressive seen from the street than when stood on. Hypergamy doesn't realize this. Refer to maxim number 123. I am maxim number 125. Today's women don't believe men are manly enough. And today's men don't believe women are womanly enough. Both are correct. Androgyny plagues our time. I am maxim number 126. If a woman accuses you of cheating when you haven't done anything, there's a high chance she's projecting her infidelity onto you. Abandon her. I am maxim number 127. The reason women set up their sons to be failures is because they can only see things from a female point of view. A son left in the sole care of his mother with no external masculine influence is being set up for failure. The most loving mother cannot adequately guide her son for she lacks the abstraction necessary to understand or empathize with the male existential viewpoint. These are the limitations of her nature, not a choice. I am maxim number 128. Women need their exes to be losers to feel like they made the right choice. If even one is a winner, her hypergamy will realize a glitch in its optimization, and thus the afflicted woman becomes awash with regret. I am maxim number 129. 
If you place your trust on a woman's conscience to compel her to do the right thing, then you are a fool by definition. I am maxim number 130. The smarter the woman, the more nimble the rationalization of her emotion. I am maxim number 131. Soulmates are top-tier fantasy men women have pedestalized in their collective subconscious. Men don't have soulmates. They have women they like and women they don't. I am maxim number 132. As a man, win or lose, you have to take risks. Being complacent and passive is a female privilege. Men have the burden of performance. Taking risks is core to the personality of masculinity. When nature gave you XY chromosomes, this was ordained. Meek and lazy men get nothing. I am maxim number 133. Masculine women are a poor simulacrum of man, for they capture man's fierceness absent his reason or accountability. I am maxim number 134. A woman hates a man who won't give her what she wants, but she absolutely detests a man who does and without a fight. I am maxim number 135. As a woman ages, her capacity to attract a top-tier mate decreases. As a man ages, his capacity to attract a top-tier mate increases. In the relationship game, women are smarter than men, for they settle as their value is dropping, whilst men will settle as their value continues to rise. I am maxim number 136. In matters of fertility and desirability, time is on man's side, not women's. From the male viewpoint, Women appear to be in a rush to reach even greater heights of commitment. The truth is, women are in a hurry because they more keenly experience depreciation. Refer to maxim number 102. I am maxim number 137. In relationships, an alpha male will give false opportunities for exercising power, like picking curtain colors, while subjugating firmly when needed. The feminine ego necessitates an illusion of inconsequential power. I am maxim number 138. If you're winning, women care about your tiniest grievances. When you're losing, you're dead to them. I am maxim number 139. When you're winning, you can be rude and unruly, and she will apologize for your mistakes. When you're losing, she will blame you for her mistakes. Refer to maxim number 138. I am maxim number 140. Much like the weak parent gives in to the child to both their eventual detriment, the weak man does the same with his woman. I am maxim number 141. In much the way a man cannot take sex, a woman cannot take commitment. Men seduce women into sex. Women seduce men into commitment. Women pitch. Men invest. I am maxim number 142. The less emotionally available you are, the more emotionally available she is. The inverse is also true. I am maxim number 143. The trick to defending male space from female influence is to shock 99% of female amygdalae. The remaining 1% will be A. Smart B. Psychopaths C. Masochists I am maxim number 144. Innocence is women's favorite illusion and when seemingly present, is almost always just that, an illusion. I am maxim number 145. Don't be honest with women you wish to admire you. If you are too truthful, your honesty will offend, 
And in this offense, a woman's scorn knows no greater enemy than the trifling man who dared connect her with a less comfortable reality. I am maxim number 146. Post-breakup women move on quicker than men. They can do this because it's easier for them to find a replacement. They invest less, and they excel at rewriting their memories to dismiss everything that was ever good about you. I am maxim number 147. Women make great servants, but poor masters. It is ill-advised to give a woman power should you want the thing she has power over to flourish or even remain intact and functional. I am maxim number 148. Women are loyal to power at all costs. Have it, and you have them. Lack it, and they will betray you. Refer to maxim number 139. I am maxim number 149. If you are not a high-energy dominant man, you're unlovable to women. Women only love men more ruthless than they are. Any arrangement made of absence of such a personality is one of economic convenience, not love. I am maxim number 150. A single woman is one who cannot secure investment. A single man is one who will not provide it. Refer to maxim number 141. Fifty Shades of Red, Part 4 You need only look at the way in which she is formed to see that woman is not meant to undergo great labor, whether of the mind or of the body. Arthur Schopenhauer Number 1. Introduction Seeing as people absolutely love maxims, I've decided to commit myself to another round of Fifty Shades of Red, being this article, and Machiavellian maxims, which will come later on. The maxims that comprise the bulk of this article are designed to educate men on the nature of women, as well as the nature of themselves in relation to women. Being a loose collection of maxims, the article is easy to read by merit of its broken-down format. I've likewise adopted brevity here, in the hope that the most prominent points will stick more easily. The maxims listed are inclusive, but not exhaustive. As such, these maxims do not compromise the totality of wisdom available on this topic. Number two. The Maxims. I am Maxim number 151. If she suddenly stops wanting your attention, she's getting attention of equal or greater value elsewhere. I am Maxim number 152. The older the woman, the greater her sense of urgency. The older the man, the more reluctant his urge to commit. I am Maxim number 153. All sensations of dread inflicted onto you by her should be responded to with equal or greater dread. I am maxim number 154. To conquer a woman's ego, frame everything she does as suspicious. Call her out, nag her, dismiss her, and you will win. The beauty of this strategy is not even her awareness can diminish its efficacy. For aware or not, dominance is dominance. I am maxim number 155. Preface everything she says with, right now I feel like, and you will understand her better, for she is capriciously fickle. I am maxim number 156. Her intentions are byproducts of her mood, not binding statements derived from a code of honor. A change in mood will as such void all and any prior declarations of intent made by her. I am maxim number 157. Women have to work hard to be likable. Men have to work hard to be fuckable. I am maxim number 158. 
If she says she needs space, neither argue nor plead. Withdraw all attention. Disappear. The ease with which you depart will make her second guess her decision. I am maxim number 159. Her need to feel safe should outweigh her infantishly narcissistic need to be in charge of things she doesn't want to be held responsible for. I am maxim number 160. It's hard for a child to understand the existential pressures of being an adult. To a lesser degree, albeit significant degree, the same is true of women with men. I am maxim number 161. A woman with confidence issues can get a quality man because it's a passive feminine trait. Boldness is man's burden. I am maxim number 162. Behind every messed up young woman who had potential is a man who broke her heart, or a misandrist harpy whispering venom into her ears. I am maxim number 163. For all her wiles and prowess in charming and deceiving others, womankind isn't so good at decision making. The reason she's great at the former is the same reason she's poor at the latter. She's evolved to fit in, not to evaluate with nor value reason. I am maxim number 164. When you're in a relationship with a woman, you must drag her up or she'll drag you down. I am maxim number 165. When women win, everyone loses, women included. They are masochists with a penchant for self-destruction and will destroy themselves as well as any who would help them if you let them. Refer to maxim number 164. I am maxim number 166. Egotistical women think they're above submissiveness because they've forgotten their place. But alphas seek submission, not conflict. I am maxim number 167. Most young women are overly cautious with men because they are mindful of his sexual intent. Yet when it comes to insidious older women who would corrupt them, they are gullible. Refer to maxim number 162. I am maxim number 168. Men thrive when they're in touch with reality. Women thrive when they're detached from it. For the very loss of innocence which strengthens man damages woman. I am maxim number 169. Despite the cultural narrative that it is men who are the cheats, women are responsible for the majority of adulterous divorce. Women have more opportunities to cheat and are less innately virtuous. Thus, only by mechanism of constant and ruthless discipline do they properly behave. I am maxim number 170. A woman's virtue is directly proportional to the level of ruthlessness her man subjects her to. Refer to maxim number 169. I am maxim number 171. If she characterizes you as villainous, unsavory, unethical, or otherwise morally reprehensible, you're winning. I am maxim number 172. A woman who boasts of her capacity to feign submissiveness is not a real woman. She is but a charlatan of artifice, the womanly equivalent of the faux-dominant man. I am maxim number 173. Loyalty is not a female trait. Refer to maxim number 170. I am maxim number 174. Despite her claims to the contrary, women care less about a man's ethics than his genes and accomplishments. As such, women will rationalize around the impropriety of the former in order to reap the benefits of the latter. 
refer to maxim number 170 and maxim number 171. I am maxim number 175. Men are meant to lead women, but women are naturally more cunning than men. Consequently, the most effective men are highly cunning leaders. I am maxim number 176. Feeling safe with a man who could kill her is insatiably aphrodisiacal for women. For the simultaneous tingle of attraction, amalgamated with a most sensual of gentleness, is her most harmonious opiate. I am maxim number 177. When she ignores your shit tests, ignore her existence. I am maxim number 178. If you always make her come to you first, you win. By not chasing her, you subtextually communicate you don't need her and have other options. By chasing you, she is investing up front and thus subconsciously affirming to herself she needs you. I am maxim number 179. Man's burden of performance and need to prove his masculinity is often weaponized against him by women in an attempt to have him do things that run counter to his interest. I am maxim number 180. Women are so invertedly egotistical that no matter how damaged they are, they seek not to be fixed, but merely desired and accepted irrespective of their undoings. I am maxim number 181. You never get a break with women. If you choose poorly, she will be entitled, arrogant, and demanding. She can be put in her place, but she will rebel often. If you choose a quality woman, she will be insecure and needy. Either way, she is emotionally erratic, and thus either way, she will test you unrelentingly to feel the authoritative security of your dominance. I am maxim number 182. Women care not for manly emotions, for they are emotionally selfish, self-centered. Women respect man's ability to make them feel a range of emotion, their penchants being to feel desired and to feel pain. I am maxim number 183. A woman who wants to war more than she wants to serve is a woman unfit for and undeserving of a relationship. Refer to maxim number 166. I am maxim number 184. Real women are submissive. And submissive women crave safety, not control. Fake submissives have an unreconciled conflict between feminism and their true natures. I am maxim number 185. Irrespective of her quality, women crave a villain who isn't afraid to treat her like the war prize her female ancestors were. I am maxim number 186. Due to the absence of a consistent and non-contradictory narrative, the opinions of women are close to worthless. Refer to maxim number 155. I am maxim number 187. You are always at war with her. Even if she needs you, she will fight you to both of your detriments. If you're not the boss, you're nothing to her. I am maxim number 188. Due to their innately masochistic nature, women try to destroy themselves as well as any man who would dare help them. Refer to maxim number 180 and 187. I am maxim number 189. When men fail in their capacity to subdue feminine chaos, when her waves of tyrannical emotion smash through the walls, nothing but the abyss remains. I am maxim number 190. Be under no illusion. Women are the chaos element of humanity. Men are the order element. 
It is man's duty as such to subdue women's chaos via the righteousness of his noblest discipline. Refer to maxim number 189. I am maxim number 191. In a crisis, your first concern should not be to fix the problem, but to handle her emotional state. Once her emotions have been handled, it is then and only then she will allow you to address the problem. For until her emotions have been managed, she will be uncooperative and do little but panic and whine. I am maxim number 192. Where women are concerned, it always ends in emotion. Feelings are all the majority of women know. Yet even amongst those who know logic, feelings constitute their prime value system. Logic is a quaint peculiarity, if not an outright obnoxious annoyance to the feminine. I am maxim number 193. Smart, egotistical women fake submissiveness and wield it as a tool to get what they want. Refer to maxim number 195. I am maxim number 194. She must feel like she needs you more than you need her. If she doesn't, she will think she's better than you. As a man, you don't get to be needy. This freedom to be weak is the sole perfume of the feminine. Refer to maxim number 199. I am maxim number 195. Womanly submissiveness is crack to the male soul. I am maxim number 196. Men are superior workers. Women, superior breeders. Men do better in the economy. Women do better reproductively. I am maxim number 197. If she's not a producer, she's not a keeper. A lazy woman makes for a poor partner and an even poorer mother. I am maxim number 198. If things become desexualized for any extended period of time, you're in trouble. A cessation of flirtation foreshadows relational ominousness. I am maxim number 199. Sometimes destruction must precede creation in order for the optimal to be born anew. In this vein, and given sufficient skill, Man can destroy woman to rebuild her into his desired image. Yet if woman is allowed to destroy man, know this, she will leave him to rot. I am maxim number 200. If she can get over you quickly, you weren't brutal enough with her. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Best of Illimitable Men, the audiobook, written by Illimitable Man and produced by Life Math Money. Narrated by Andrew Baldwin. If you enjoyed this production, please leave us a five-star rating on Gumroad. Thank you for listening.